thanks for taking the time to download this BBC Radio 5 Live podcast. To search for other podcasts you might like, click bbc.co.uk slash 5 Live, where you'll also find our terms of use. An email from Katie Davis. BA, hello. BA Honours in Music. You're not doing hello, what's up, what's up, what's up. You're just going straight in like that. Dear Kermit and Miss Piggy. OK, hello, everybody. I'll do the, do the hello. Hello, thank you for downloading this podcast. How are you, Simon? I'm fine. Midtown. And how are you, here. Mark? I'm fine too. Trust Thanks. me, Mark. Mark, trust me. <laughs> That'll be a first. I want to thank you for giving me an inspired way of telling my wonderful boyfriend, Peter Green, not of Fleetwood Mac, to do the dishes. Telling him to wash up, wash up, wash up. Very good. Makes me seem less pushy and therefore seems to be a far more effective way of getting him to do this most hated chore. Your ever faithful listener, Katie Davis. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the I show. I see. Fine. That's see, what you're doing. Clever, so, smart, smart, oh, yeah, fine. Okay. innovative, different, but essentially the same. So, uh, hello and welcome to the programme. Uh, whether we're going to break... I think it was a record-breaking podcast that we had. It was. Uh, last week. Went <laughs> on the length. forever, which is, uh, which is the future. I think we could do a 24-hour TV channel. Which is basically <laughs> just us all the time. No, that sounds <laughs> like a just nightmare. Us. Uh, Emma from the Wirral. Uh, long-time listener, first-time emailer and all that. Although I'm not sure what actually qualifies as a long-time listener. Is four years enough? Well, is, is four years a long time? Yes, I think four years. Is, well, no, mid. I don't think... Well, what's a ten-year list? That's, that's a very long time. No, OK, fine. So let's, uh, let, let's absolutely codify this. So ten years is a long-time listener. Five years is a medium-time listener. One year is a new listener. So four years, you're sort of medium. Anyway, over the past few years, I have the luxury of working in a job that has allowed me to listen to my uh, generic and all that. I spent quite a few months trying out different podcasts until I landed myself as part of the Wittertainment family. So every Monday for the past four years, I've set myself up for a hard day of working, and by that I mean making vast amounts of tea. Then I'd settle in for a few hours of Wittertaining magic. However, January the 26th will mark my last ever Monday morning listening to you guys, as I have landed my dream job becoming a registrar, as in the type who marries people, not the hospital working type. So I will no longer have the magical Monday start in the Wittertainment family. Of course, I will be striving to listen to you guys whenever I can. I was thinking that the gym might be a good place, but with a high chance of getting a Wittertainment-related injury, that might be out of the question. If I could get a best of luck for, or a what's up from you guys, I guess that's my job then. That's your wash up, watch up from Emma. What's up? It would make my last official Monday listening the best evs, and of course, it would be totes in motion. Thank you for uh, all the entertaining over the years. It's almost like a departure. Anyway, she's changing her routine. Are you all get up and ready, by the way. I am. Yes. Why? Is it going to be a good show? What's your thought? I think it's going to be a rocking show. Don't you? Th- I mean, I don't know. You've done the interview with Paul Bettany already, so you tell me how that went. Well, it's 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 it's. it's, it's, it's... It's an interesting challenge mm. not to talk to Did Paul talk because to... <laughs> because Paul is always delightful and he is fab delightful. Mm. It's just that this is a slightly different interview because because he's promoting Mordecai and therefore it's a different interview. Why is that, Simon? You're going to have to wait. Am I? And okay. find, find out. out. Phil Jones is in Hong Kong. I write from the former colony of Hong Kong, where I don't think you're supposed to refer to it like that anymore. Where working late into the night for one of the city's morning newspapers, I'm often slow to move of a morning and have turned to the BBC's flagship film review podcast to give purpose to lengthy AM snoozes. However, this has taken a turn for the worse. During what must have been a particularly deep snooze, 
I awoke from a rather disturbing dream. The crews had all gone a bit Lord of the Flies. There'd been a lot of drumming. Mark had been doing a lot of shrieking. And it all culminated in a lot of babadooking. Somewhere along the way, Weezer had been mentioned. I've since listened to last week's podcast for a second time, this time paying more attention, and have managed to work out that what had happened, uh, what had happened, and it seems the only thing my subconscious added was the face paint and the babadook. I know many other listeners have mentioned falling asleep to the podcast, so I wonder if any other WRDSs, which are related dream sequences, have befallen them. Do you think anyone dreams about this show? Well, I know that I do. Nightmare inducing. <laughs> Anyway, uh, I regularly have to pass off your views as my own in film conversations with friends back home as we only get selected offerings in the cinemas here and we're still a month away from getting the imitation game. Wow. I think a lot of people just passed off off. Pass Passed. That. <laughs> Do you want to have another run of it? And they just think, yeah, I'm just going to say this and I'm going to say it's my view, whereas actually it's your view. Or, or indeed your view. Well, it's rarely my view. My views are not relevant. My views are subservient to there yours. Was a, there was a piece about us in the Radio Times. God, I, I heard about that. God bless them. And one of the phrases that you used was, if I haven't seen it, I agree with Mark. In, in general, that's <laughs> always... A, even if I have seen it, I've just not heard that in the real world. Yeah, I'm just thinking. So the movies that were coming up this week, I think... I mean, that's by and large true, I think. If, in, if you haven't got an opinion, assume that your opinion is the... Def, it's like a default position. If I reset, I reset to your uh, opinion, unless I know to the contrary. OK. Is that fair enough? That's fair enough, yes. I think we should also start reintroducing my, my album of the week, and then you can mention Nick Lowe. Yes. But now that we've got Playlister again... So have we added anything to Playlister this week? Not since last week's programme. But apparently uh, some suggestions have come in from listeners, so that they have been added, though I don't think we've approved them, so they might get taken off. Oh, so what, what did we suggest? Um, it was stuff that we had suggested uh, and played, have but we, hadn't actually made Have it we got Florence, It's a Lovely Morning from Dougal and the Blue Cat yet? There's now a sequence where we're going to talk through the glass to people who can't speak back. What was that you said? Have, you, have, we, have we got Florence, It's a Lovely Morning from Dougal and the Blue Cat yet? No. No, no we've never played it, we've never played it on the podcast. Can we play it on the podcast today? No. no. I'm not talking to you, I'm talking to Robin behind the glass. Yeah, but he can't speak back. He He's, can speak back, he's talking in my head. Robin... At the end of the programme, could we have Florence, It's a Lovely Morning from Doodle and the Blue Cat and then we can put it on Playlister? He doesn't see why not, Simon. Robin is Mark's imaginary friend, by the way, who doesn't actually exist. They've see, the pod, people have seen him on the, on, the, on, the, on the web feed thing. Well, it's someone who you claim is Robin, but actually he, he's a secret friend. <laughs> he's an imaginary friend. Yes. He's an imaginary manservant. <laughs> that's the way... That's is he played by Paul Bettany? Yeah. OK. That's the way... I've always thought Robin looks exactly like Paul Bettany. I think... Do you know what I think we should do a movie based on this show? Called? Wittertainment the Movie. And you know what? It would be better than Mordecai. Anyway, I'm just <laughs> just, just putting it out there. It's just a... Just moving on. So we're going to have a... Can I just say, Paul, if you're listening to this podcast, we like you very much. Yes, we do. I think he so knows why, that. Do you want to make, make that clear? Yes. We do, Paul, and you're very welcome Anytime. to come in. And uh, as people are about to hear, he's, he's in the new Avengers Assembled movie, so we would like you, him to come in and talk about that. And whatever is said about the movie that you're in, please don't take it personally. Yes. Apart from, yeah. Is that, <laughs> is that fair? That's fair. Okay. Yes. It's like you're, you're being warned. Yes, okay. <laughs> There's a torrent on the way. Uh, right, well, I've got other stuff, but it's not good enough. So okay. it can either wait till later or get thrown in the bin. Should we wait till later? Are you ready to go? I am ready to go. 
Good afternoon. Welcome to the programme. We're talking movies on the BBC's flagship film show, as it is officially called in all uh, official circles. <laughs> uh, you can follow us on the live stream via the website, where you can look at our playlist uh, thing, which is uh, all rather groovy. Uh, and you can text 85058. You can email me at bbc.co.uk. On the subject of the playlist, which was only launched last, last week. last week. And how many, how many have playlisted? Oh, I don't Just know. countless thousands. Quite a few. OK, fine. Martin in Shoreham by Sea. Uh, wants to say thanks a bunch for the playlist, which I set up with one of those apps. Don't ask me how I did it, I just did. The app is very clever and uses my playlists and favourite tracks to create a flow of tunes it thinks I'd like. Now, while I'm listening to a selection of the latest <laughs> tunes, I'm trying to show how cool and trendy I am. This is going the, to end badly, the isn't app it? keeps playing... The Gnu song by Flanders and Swan. It's a bit jarring when compared to the other tracks, and it's showing me up. Though maybe that's because I keep singing along to it. Well, that's the thing. It's, it, you could say it's slightly um, esoteric. I'm disappointed in to learn in, the, in the, the pre-show podcast that we did that apparently they, they don't have a copy of Florence, It's a Lovely Morning to put on the, to add to the playlist, because obviously we're going to add to it as the shows go on. And we can only add to it things that we played in each show. But Dis- Disco Dave's in Linwood, by the way, these days. Right. Finally, he says, you justified me paying for a 12-month subscription service to an online streaming service with your Wittertainment playlist. This was road-tested last Friday after seeing American Sniper at my local world of Sydney in Glasgow City Centre. Superb film, maybe not the best thing to see after drinking a few energy drinks. Nonetheless, loved the high tension in it. I live in Linwood. However, the trusty night bus service only goes as far as Paisley, meaning I had a three-mile walk in cold and frosty conditions in order to get home. It was about midnight, and while I usually listen to Pete Tong or B Traits on Radio 1... Yes. Do you listen to B Traits a lot? Um, or is it B Traits? <laughs> I bet it is. It should be B apostrophe, not B full stop. I, I don't, don't look at me. I'm on Radio 5. I'm four whole stations away from what Radio does, 1. What does Betraits do? I don't know. Anyway. I get into the Radio 1 lift. I have to sit down afterwards. Disco, Disco Dave has given up on that. Anyway, instead of Betraits, uh, I uh, yes, I thought I may as well give you a playlist to try on my smartphone. It's tremendous and perfect for me. Arguably, it's more random than six music during daytime. Being a fan of disco, I was singing along to Copacabana out loud as I reached the petrol station on Perimeter Road in Linwood and promptly stopped when I saw someone walking their dog about ten yards away. I know, walking the dog during the early hours? Hey, who are we to judge? Can you please give a shout-out to my brother Brian, a recent convert to the clergy, and to Gillian and East Kilbride, my BFF, for the... For the past 12 years, which is totes for evs, and I'm not even joking. <laughs> and funny you should mention Aztec Camera last week. My good friend Gillian claims that not only are they from East Kilbride, but that Westwood, the area in which she lives, is referenced in their number three UK hit, Somewhere in My Heart, from 1988, from Westwood to Hollywood, the one thing that's understood, cue Mark to sing the rest of it. Is that you can't buy time, but you can, lose, but you can sell your soul, and the nearest thing to heaven is to rock and roll. Thank you, Disco right? Dave. It's going to be added to the playlist. I'm not okay. sure how long that takes, but anyway, we're going to do that, and I'm going to find out what Betraits is up to, and we might put up some of his work there as well. Very good. Was I? Was I? What, did, did I complete that quote correctly? Yeah, pretty much. Good. Yeah, he just says Q Mark to sing the rest of it. Very so good, he good, didn't good, actually good. do that. Just one more before the t- for the top ten. This is uh, Craig who uh, sends this. I just listened uh, to last week's show with Donald Gleeson. What a nice chap he sounds. More of him Isn't in just a moment, yeah. because uh, ex machina yeah. for review today. Being a science nerd of the nth order, the highlight of the show for me, though probably not for anyone else, and certainly not for manufacturers and retailers of home cinema systems, was Mark's exemplary shooting down of the idea that there is some magical optimal viewing position from which to watch a film or to watch the TV. Yeah. 
I now pause to establish my credentials. I have a PhD in visual psychophysics from the University of Nottingham. Who knew? I worked as a postdoctoral researcher in the field of vision science for seven years. I've been in more brain scanners than Times Marcus Watch scanners. And I now, <laughs> That's very good. I now work in the field of ergonomics, mainly designing control rooms in the Norwegian oil and gas industry. I think this means he's qualified. Yeah. As such, I can categorically state there is no ideal or optimal position from which to view a film that is supported by any concrete science for more than a smallish subset of humanity. Anybody who tells you that their armchair is ideally positioned in front of their telly or chooses a seat in the cinema based on the ratio of the screen size to the distance or the pixel size or some other spurious metric is simply slavishly following what they were told by the salesman in the generic televisual device retailer, who is presumably currently laughing all the way to their generic financial institution. There is such a thing as a minimum viewing distance. Do you know what that is? Uh, it must be something like... It, it must depend on the size of the screen, mustn't it? It must be a ratio in terms of the size of Just the screen. give me a distance. What's the minimum viewing distance? In a cinema or on a, on a television? Watching TV. Uh, from a, from a television, it must be six foot. Or both. 70 centimetres. Well, uh, hang on. Well, one's 12, you... that's, that's, that, that's almost exactly six foot. It's 12... No, huh? it's tiny. Oh, no, I'm thinking Lord analogue. <laughs> Since you can do permanent damage to your Sorry. eyesight by being too close to what you are looking at for extended periods, but a cinema screen is usually well beyond this minimum. If your TV or monitor is within this minimum distance, then, like Janine from Ghostbusters, you're going to get bug eyes. Anyway, <laughs> thank you very much indeed. It's a very, very good service. Thank you, Greg, for your supportive words. Uh, so, Paul Bettany is going to be after 2.30. Shall we do the box office top 11? Let's do that. The top 11. Yes, Do you know why? Because at number 10, there is a performance by the Met. Merry Widow. Yeah. Uh, it's the New York Met doing that thing. And we're not an opera review show. But if you did see that, if you did go to the cinema and you, and you watched it, by all means, tell us. But in general, we don't do that kind of thing. So we're going to do number 11, particularly because it's a Testament of Youth. Very good. Which is not in the top 10. So I, I think Testament of Youth is an... It's a solidly and handsomely made film. The problem with it is, is that when you consider just how crucially important um, the, the text upon which it's based is, which has been published in 33, I think. The film is somewhat unremarkable. I mean, there are solid performances, not least from Lisa Vikander, who stepped into a role that was originally earmarked for Saoirse Ronan. And I think she does a very good job with an only very, very slightly wobbly accent. But I just... I, I think, in the end, the film is solid, but not more than that, which is only a problem because... Because the original novel is so, the original book, sorry, novel book memoir is so much more important. Uh, Phil in York, despite being packed full of amazing actors, Testament of Youth was extremely long, incredibly boring, and curiously hollow. It didn't move me except to look at my watch and wonder how many more minutes were left. Oh, really? Okay, fine. Uh, Louise Merwich. I had some misgivings, having been much influenced by the B BBC adaptation in 1979, and I didn't think it could be bettered, but I was wrong. The two are different, but the film is more subtle. It has avoided potential traps of sentimentality and maintained suspense, even for me, who knows the book so well, by a phased reveal of key information such as detail on the ultimate fate of the protagonist. It also portrayed the grim nature of war by focusing on individuals rather than the more usual big-screen overload. The one overview... Uh, yes, can't do that because it's an overview. David Pullen. I sat through Testament of Youth last night at the wonderful picture house in Uckfield and realised I was in trouble when I had the thought, 
Although we're only up to 1916. All in all, I have to agree with Mark that this was a missed opportunity. Britain's story, as in Vera Britain's story, is deeply important, but this screenplay couldn't reveal the cause and effect that helped to create the activist from the horrors she witnessed. Uh, what, were we, what we were left with was an under-energised, soft-focused love story that has been told a million times before. Liz Sewell, having read the book and seen the wonderful TV series, I was worried that a film would be too short to do it justice, but Alicia Vikander's intense, intelligent performance brought out Vera's independence and her deep desire for love and learning and her need to be part of what was happening, uh, not just an observer. Testament of Youth, it's not can, can I very quickly say something about that thing? But, you know, we've, we've heard it all... The, 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 the one email before that, the thing we've heard it all before, the thing is, in a way, this sets into place many of the things that now seem cliched you know this is sort of the source text for them and that's one of the problems that the film can't quite address so when you look at it and you think well, we have seen this before we saw the pre-war romance the brief encounter parting that you know all those things and yet obviously the text itself is original the film just feels derivative does that make sense yes okay thank it you does. i'm glad that did sorry i'd like to apologize uh, for my big clunking error um, what's that at the start of the show as highlighted by alex hardman future BSc Maths with Finance at Leeds University. I just thought I'd pull you up on something, Simon. Betraits is, in fact, a woman with fantastic hair who I will be lucky enough to see this Saturday in Leeds. Apart from that, good effort. Keep up with the dance music references. Yeah, yeah. so keep that up, please. And my apologies to What Ms. you Betraits. should do is you should spend some time in the Radio 1 lift, just going up and I down. I have done. I came up in the one extra lift, which was quite... <laughs> <a different. laughs> yes. So uh, I was kind of energised. Uh, Wild is at number nine. Now, I like Wild very much. And again, you're talking about an adaptation of, um, you know, a celebrated text. I think Reese Witherspoon does a terrific job as Cheryl Strait, who walks a thousand miles in order to become the woman her mother thought she was. And Jean-Marc Vallée, who directed um, Dallas Buyers Club and got such great performances out of Matthew McConaughey, I mean, that was kind of key part of what was then known as the McConaughey's. I think that he does a he does a really good job in involving us in her journey and then allowing the flashbacks to her life, to her mother, to her marriage, to the things in in her life which have kind of brought her to this sort of uh, this 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 rocky road. Doing it in a way which doesn't feel as intrusive. We, we you and I had a bit of a set too about the fact that there's a use of a Simon and Garfunkel. Um, look, uh, con, uh, you mean a mild disagreement? Okay, you call it a mild disagreement. I call it a set too. Let's call the whole thing off. Yes, El Condor Paso is yes, used. But yeah. I thought that the music was was used really well and really evocatively. You you just thought it was it was a bit on the nose, I think, is well, the phrase. I, no, isn't it? I just thought it was, you know, I'd rather be a sparrow than a snail. Oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> do you think anyone in the control room said that when Simon Garfunkel recorded it? <laughs> no, said, do you think, I love do the you think song. Went, oh, come on. I love the song. I'm the biggest Simon Garfunkel fan in the world, and I think the movie is, is true. I just didn't think it was perfectly placed. However, <laughs> Debbie Patterson disagrees. with you. She's yeah, fine, good. I'm... Usually when watching a film in a public arena, you're aware of your fellow moviegoers fidgeting and rustling in bags of popcorn the size of a dustbin or getting up and down to powder their noses. But for two hours today, whilst watching Wild, I didn't move a muscle, and you have to... You've had, you could have had a pin drop in the room. I was so engaged in what was happening on the screen that I was totally unaware of anything else around me. It was only when the title started to roll that I remembered where I was. Reese Witherspoon's performance is totally absorbing. The story is raw and powerful, and the moments featuring Laura Dern as Cheryl's mother were so emotional, I totally connected with their relationship and the impact it had on Cheryl's life. So I found Wild very understated, utterly captivating, and I'll be thinking about the way it made me feel for a long time. And Simon is wrong. The Simon and Garfunkel moment was perfect. Debbie Thank Patterson, you very much. Thank you. Who is also wrong yep. <laughs> uh, about that.
But the, one of the other things I liked is that it has this soundtrack in which you sometimes you hear her singing the song and sometimes you hear the song and sometimes you hear, you know, uh, on-set sound and sometimes you hear what appears to be foliage sound. And I like that it's, it's the, sound of, the soundtrack of that film is like waves on a beach. I need to. Go I did that with an with an arm movement. Just in case can I didn't see. know what waves on a beach. No, just in case people like. were watching on the it live stream for the for the live streamers. Uh, so we have number uh, wild at number nine. Birdman's at number eight. If you could stop doing it like a hula hula girl, that would be really terrific. Thanks very much indeed, Birdman. Go ahead. Uh, <laughs> thank you. Go go. Was that uh, dance monkey dance? I think that Keaton is great. Um, I think there is a possibility that Alejandro Gonzalez Iñárritu is going to beat um, Richard Linklater to the Best uh, Director Oscar, although I think that Boyhood will win Best Picture. I can just imagine the members of the Academy going, yeah, but that Birdman was brilliantly directed because it all appears to be in one shot and because the camera never sits still and because, you know, uh, Emmanuel Lubezki is doing... Well, it's not because it's about movies, because it's not, actually. It's about theatre. Theatre, 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 Peter Hall. That's what it's about. And I would, I, I just hope that what happens is that they realise that whilst Emmanuel Lubezki's uh, cinematography is dazzling as it was in Gravity, that perhaps the direction, just because the direction is shrieking at you, look at me, look at how directed I am, look, I haven't cut at all, although I have, um, that they don't mistake that for being better than Richard Linklater making a film over the course of 12 years in which you really feel that you are getting somewhere with with the film itself. I mean, I, I, I do have a problem with Birdman. A number of people have written to me and said, you know, I can't believe that you had this problem with it because I think it's, it, you know, it's it's one of the best cinema experiences I've had. Robbie Collin, I think, used the phrase, um, you know, it, it's, it's everything that you dream about in cinema. It's kind of my sort of cinema nightmare. It's like, yeah, I, I, I see that you can do that. Now, can you stop doing it? It's like that thing, you know, the definition of a gentleman is someone who can play the bagpipes but doesn't. You know, Alejandro Gonzalez in Yaratu can certainly play the bagpipes. I wish he wouldn't. And how do you say his name again? Alejandro Gonzalez in Yaratu. In Yaratu. OK, that's relevant for this email. Oh, from... and, some, and somebody wrote, and it's not Alejandro, it's Alejandro with a, with a H-E sound. Sorry. In Yaratu. Inyaritu. Inyaritu. Sally Pugh says, in Birdman, Lindsay Duncan's sullen critic states, with a disappointing lack of flappy hands, that she's going to kill our beleaguered hero's play. Unlike Duncan's character, I do not wish to kill Inyaritu's Birdman, but I would like to give it a firm telling off. Whereas other filmmakers such as Linklater and Nolan aim to create films... Inyaratu sets out to create art. He disregards such irrelevant movie-making tropes such as heart, plot and character development and instead puts all of his energy into making something he views as clever, unique and profound. Unfortunately, Birdman is none of these things. It is instead simply a mishmash of eccentric ideas blended together with a smug air of self-importance. Despite what it wants us to think, the film's themes of art and obsession are not unique and are executed much better in films such as Black Swan. If Birdman was a bird, it would be a cuckoo. It's, <laughs> it's a small movie slyly nabbing ideas from better films and passing them off as its own. I think they should put that on the, on the poster. If it was Thank a you, bird, Sally it Pugh. would be a cuckoo. Catherine Jago, despite being of similar age to The Good Doctors, I would guess that we were the third youngest group of people 
at this particular showing of Birdman. This chimes with a conversation I had with a group of 18-year-olds to whom the name Michael Keaton meant nothing and they had no knowledge of the Burton Keaton Batman films Sad But True. I enjoyed Birdman very much, found the drumming added tension to the drama and I was constantly surprised by the plot twists. But one son is studying stage management and my other shares a flat with a jazz musician and one of my favourite films is still Wings of Desire. So perhaps I was already slightly inured to the pretension or maybe I just have an affinity with winged creatures. Peter Pullman, I'm really surprised by some of the negativity Birdman has received. Mm. It's a ferociously dark comedy with practically the whole cast giving career-best performances. Labelling the truly dazzling cinematography as a gimmick, as some have done, strike me, strikes me as incredibly dismissive to the beauty and impact achieved. I didn't even mind the jazz drums. I wouldn't be surprised if Mark reevaluates his opinion of this film in the future. Probably still hate the drums, though. Yeah, um... I don't think that... I mean, I'm not criticising the cinematography. As I said, I think Emmanuel Lubezki does a brilliant job. It's the direction of the cinematography that bothers me. OK, now we do uh, Whiplash at number seven. Which I just loved. Uh, J.K. Simmons is definitely going to win the uh, Oscar for Best Supporting Actor. I mean, obviously, Oscars are silly and foolish and it doesn't make any difference, but it'd be quite nice to see him win it anyway. Um, I think I just think it's a terrifically exciting war movie that happens to be set in a drum practice studio. Uh, the idea of somebody making, you know, a, a, a thriller in which the action sequence is somebody doing a drum solo, which, as we know, is the, the you know, the, the second most moribund of all art forms after the bass solo, is just wonderful. And Simmons is doing, you know, Lou Gossett Jr. and uh, Arlie Ermey, and and, and he does it brilliantly. And Miles Teller does that fantastic job of really making you think that he's he's a boxer or a fighter or a marine in training when actually what he's doing is playing the drums. And so much so that I came out the end of it sort of dizzy with excitement. And uh, I know many other people have had exactly the same exactly the same reaction, and I, I loved it. So a couple of people said, "Well, do, you know, is, does it mean anything more? That it, does it have any deeper thing?" I think it's not as shallow as some people are giving it credit for, but I think that, like some of the drum solos that get played in it, you know, it may be surface, but what surface? Lizzie Swindles in London. As an avid Wittertainee, I've often considered emailing in with my thoughts on various films. However, I've saved myself for one that is truly worthwhile, Whiplash. I went into this film with high expectations, and I have to say they were more than exceeded. The confrontations between Fletcher and Andrew were electrifying. Yeah, they are. They're, they're, electrifying is a great word, and I, I think that's exactly what they never are. Never pause for breath during an email. You never knew who would emerge from them with the upper hand. J.K. Simmons is seen stealingly incredible as the cruel and aggressive teacher who tears people down to test their ability, and Miles Teller is equally brilliant as the obsessive student who takes his talent and desire beyond the limits demanded of him. The intensity of the 19-day shoot definitely translates onto the big screen. The drumming sequences have the drama and pace of any action uh, set piece. Thanks for uh, the show and all that. I wasn't going to read that. But my my favourite this award season by far, and I imagine I will struggle to find a better film this year. If you're interested as well, there is a short film from 2013 called Whiplash also, which is the kind of the thing upon which this was based. And when we did uh, the review of Babadook... Um, I recommended people go and have a look to the link of Jennifer Kent's original movie, uh, The Monster, or just Monster, I beg your pardon. I'm not sure that the whole of the original Whiplash is online, but certainly certain parts of it are, and they are fascinating in terms of seeing how the, you know, how the drama developed. Uh, so we have uh, The Hobbit, The Battle of the Five, Five Armies at number six. Well, the only thing I, I have to add to this is there's a thing going on at the moment called World Hobbit Project, which is... Um, 
academic research into how audiences around the world respond to The Hobbit. I think you and I have pretty much said everything we have to say about The Hobbit, but if you're interested, worldhobbitproject.org, I think it is, and there's a questionnaire, and they're trying to figure out how different audiences in different parts of the world respond to this sort of fantasy cinema milestone. And crucially, you, the thing is, says, take, take the survey whether you like the films or not. I did it, and I managed to do it in 11 minutes. So. Paddington's at number five. Which we just love. It was it was in the Wittertainment top ten when we joined, uh, you know, your top ten and my top ten together. Somebody wrote an email last week saying, can we all go and carry on seeing Paddington, even if we've seen it before, so that it's still in the top ten forever and ever and ever. And it's it seems to be doing a pretty good job of it. I mean, I don't know how many weeks it's been in there? Nine, eight, nine weeks still hanging on in there. And the simple reason is it's really good. Uh, we'll get we've got correspondence on all these films, which we'll get to. But I'm aware we've got the news and sport coming up, and uh, also Paul Bettany. Uh, so we'll come back to some of this stuff. And also I've got a, a very interesting correspondence about American Sniper. Oh right, okay. uh, which is on the way. Into the sure. Woods is at number four. Aisha Wheatley, age fifteen. Mark, what were you thinking? Into the Woods. You is totes wrong, man. Okay, I'm just I'm just reading this you out. When, if Aisha was saying it, it would probably sound a whole lot better. Okay, do, do, it, do it as if Aisha was saying it. No. I thoroughly enjoyed this film. Admittedly, I did go and see it immediately after six hours rehearsing another Sondheim musical, which is Sweeney Todd, and I did go and see it with a bunch of musical enthusiasts, all of whom loved it and found it as funny as I did. Granted, Johnny Depp wasn't brilliant, but what is one short number in the grand scheme of a 124-minute long musical? I thought Meryl Streep's performance was fabulous, and I was pleasantly surprised by James Corden and Emily Blunt. I found it moving, lovely to look at. What could have been a very dark film visually, had moments of light, the balance well with the gloom of the woods, the acting and singing was great, and I'll be dragging my family along with me to see it again at some point in the future, and she's quite right. So we move on. Did you want to say something? Just very quickly. Um, you know what I said about Johnny Depp is awful in Into the Woods? I hadn't seen Mordecai at that point. OK, fair enough. Uh, the Theory of Everything is at number three. John, from, uh, no, Josh from New Cross. As a recent devotee to your church, I am dumbfounded at the praise that the head-bangingly boring Theory of Everything, stand by everybody, has been <laughs> getting on this show. Not only did it turn out to be one, turn one of the most fascinating people of all time into a protagonist in a love triangle, but it manages to hit every prestige biopic beat along the way. I will concede that the performances, particularly Felicity Jones, are quite strong. But I it's think, the, I it's think the only saving grace in this snooze fest. Sorry, but I expect more from James Marsh. As you said in the uh, Radio Times interview recently, that you feel that uh, Eddie Red maybe has got a very strong chance of uh, winning the Oscar for Best Actor. I think that in any other year, Felicity Jones would. I, obviously, this year she's up against Julianne Moore for Still Alice, and I think that you know I think she's got a chance, but it's an outside chance. I think the, the, the movie told the story in a way which was really moving and engaging and emotional. No, it's not about the theory; it's about the relationship. It's based on her book, and. Uh, yeah, I think generally I disagree with all of that. Uh, Sandra Ayres, just home from uh, The Theory of Everything. Not an ideal film to watch when you're full of cold and the story makes you blood, but big applause to Eddie Redmayne and Felicity Jones for portraying Stephen and Jane. Quite exhausting just to watch Eddie's performance as the motor neuron disease took over. He really is coming into his own as an actor, but for me, I really love Felicity slash Jane's story. Yeah, really felt her sense of commitment and conflict in her marriage. Uh, very brave indeed. should also say that when she came on the show a couple of years ago, she was just super nice, wasn't she? So therefore, uh, we follow her with interest and maybe one day she'll come back and we can talk to her again. Yeah, about launching her career and obviously giving her the, the leg up in order to get uh, the yeah, Academy Award. Because right. we, we take credit for all of that. We, do you think we could what? launch a wittertainment agency where we actually sort of look after the careers of actors? 
I, th- I think it's a, it's a, it's doable. Robin, is that doable? I think Robin I, says yes. I don't think it conflicts. Well, I'm not with... talking to him because he yeah, said he can't find Florence. It's a lovely morning, as if you know, like it was yeah, really looking very hard. We're talking movies between now and four o'clock. The interview with Paul Bettany and uh, conversation around a whole bunch of things, but also the movie that he's promoting, which is Mordecai, uh, coming up very shortly. Uh, we were doing the box office top ten, and we got to the. Uh, Number three, which is the theory of everything, and I didn't want to hurry on to American Sniper, just because people have some strong opinions about it. But sure. yours first, in summary, and praise I think that, as with all Clint Eastwood films, it's, um, it's more ambiguous than it looks. And it's divided opinion largely because I think people have tended to take it rather too much at face value. I think it's a film which allows you to read its central character um, in a number of different ways. And... I don't think it's as straight down the line as perhaps uh, some people have thought it is. I think at the end, there is a necessarily flag-waving coda, which happened because of events in, in 2013, which I think that the, that the letter you're about to read will refer to. And I felt myself that when Spielberg was talking about it having a balancing perspective in terms of uh, uh, elaborating the role of the Iraqi sniper who becomes his nemesis, I thought that sounded like an interesting idea. But... The fact of the matter is Clint Eastwood has a very sort of poker face style of direction and I think that the film is disturbing um, but it's also much more ambiguous than people think it is. I don't think it is just a straight-down-the-line flag-waving movie even though the success of it at the American box office has caused some commentators to say that's exactly what it is. I don't, I don't think it is quite that. Uh, Jeff Rickard uh, on this from our Facebook page. I saw American Sniper at my local... Uh... Dolby Atmos screen in Bristol last night. If you can get past the flag-waving on a visceral entertainment level, it's the best action film of the year for me. Eastwood manages to put you right in the soldier's shoes, supported by a fantastic sound mix. Helicopters and jets flying overhead, bullets flying past your head and hitting the walls behind you. The scene in the sandstorm was utterly brilliant, and if the film doesn't win the Oscar for best sound mixing, I'll eat Mark's shoes, which I wouldn't recommend, (laughs) having seen the state of them. Simon Williams, American Sniper is a strong offering from Clint Eastwood after some subpar efforts. However, that bit, which I can't mention, was simply awful. Um, Thank you. Uh, Now, here's an interesting uh, email from Gareth. On Monday, my partner and I ventured out to watch American Sniper, expecting to see what we thought would be a good film. I never expected to have the reaction that I did. Being an ex-Royal Marine who has served on several tours of duty in various parts of the world, I found the experience of watching this film Something quite beyond words. The film itself, I would have to say, is the best film I have ever seen. I do not say this lightly, as we are keen filmgoers with a wide variety of tastes. In American Sniper, Clint Eastwood delivers a story so beautifully told that I experienced almost all emotions possible in a two-hour period. At no point does Mr Eastwood dwell on or undercut any issue, allowing the film to keep a perfect balance all the way through. Clint Eastwood has not made a film about post-traumatic stress disorder or a warrior's duel or a struggling relationship. He has told a story so well that it includes every aspect of life from sadness to joy and adrenaline-rushed action to the depression of the inner mind. It is just a wonderfully told and true story. How he has not been nominated for an Oscar is beyond me. After our usual jaunts to the cinema, my beautiful wife and I actively discussed said film to exhaustion. On this occasion, my beautiful wife asked me what I thought of the film. My reaction was that I couldn't speak for five minutes, and when I did, it was tears that came. As you can tell, I truly struggle for the words to demonstrate what this film means to me. It just leaves me to say thank you to Clint Eastwood, Bradley Cooper and all the other cast and crew for making this film. And the biggest thank you to the Kyle family for allowing this film to be made after Chris Kyle's sad and untimely death. You have done more for me than you can possibly imagine. 
Well, that's, that's interesting. It. From uh, from an ex-Royal Marine who's kind of been there and, and done some of that. Absolutely, and uh, beautifully written. Thank you for sending that in. Of course, um, American Sniper is up for Best Picture. Um, Eastwood isn't nominated for Best Director, as you quite rightly point out. That's Anderson, Inyaritu, uh, Richard Linklater, Bennett Miller and uh, Morton Tilden. Um, well, a lot, we had a lot of correspondence from people who had... Um, a similar, not the same, but a similar uh, reaction to Kajaki in terms of, uh, you know, if you have experience of this area, then, the, you know, the, the, saying that the film was a very, very authentic representation. I remember when um, Saving Private Ryan came out and uh, people talking about, people who knew, talking about it being, you know, the most authentic representation on screen of those actions. I still retain my reservations about the film, um, but my reservations are not what... Uh, what have sort of widely been put around? I mean, the, the 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 thing is, it has caused such divisive reactions. On the one hand, that very very eloquently expressed admiration for the film. On the other hand, some people just saying this is absolute, you know, uh, nationalist propaganda and it's single minded. Well, and uh, John O'Farrell, the uh, commentator and writer, and. Yes. Uh, uh, former Labour speechwriter uh, and so on. He yes. said, uh, "I've just come out of American Sniper. I didn't know Fox News made movies." So that's that's mm. that kind of reaction yeah. that you're talking about. Yes, and I disagree with that reaction because I think that that doesn't it misunderstands uh, Eastwood's purpose. As I said, the best way of describing Eastwood's direction, apart from the fact that he never does more than sort of two or three takes and he moves on, is he is very, very poker-faced. He doesn't... I mean, if you look at Unforgiven, which I think there is a comparison here, instantly, I think Unforgiven is a far better film, but there is a similar thing that he does... You know, he can make very weighty philosophical uh, points about... There's that line in Unforgiven, it's a hell of a thing, killing a man, and that line is almost, word for word, slightly changed. Um, it turns up... In American Sniper. And I think, you know, Eastwood is talking about all these things. He's talking about militarism. He's talking about gun culture. He's talking, uh, he's talking about them and he is allowing the audience to make their own mind up. Not in a, in a perfect way, but I think to misread it as the gentleman you mentioned before, not the letter writer, is, is, is to make an assumption about Eastwood, which is incorrect. And the number one movie is Taken 3. <sighs> OK, that's fine. So it's you don't, uh, you really don't. It's there's just there's we, just there's just no point, is there? No. See previous shows. See previous. See detail. previous shows dating all the way back to whenevs, because it's just tote not on. Sixteen minutes to three o'clock. So let's talk about Mordecai. Uh, Paul Bettany joining us in just a second. In this clip from the movie, you will hear from Paul and from Gwyneth Paltrow and from Johnny Depp. What is that? Just a little something I cooked up whilst you were away, my darling. I do believe it was Maggie Thatcher who said that kissing a man without a moustache is rather like eating an egg without salt. Uh, don't point that thing at me. Soldier. I have put no inconsiderable thought and effort into this endeavour. You see, the domain of a man's upper lip is his sovereign ground. You have five minutes to shake Every it off. Mordecai man before me had the same. Why can't I? Darling, you really won't shave it off. Well, I can't, my dark. Jock? Yes, madam. Please, will you make up the guest bedroom for Mr Mordecai? Already have, madam. And that's a clip from Mordecai. I'm delighted to say that uh, one of its uh, many stars, the one and only Paul Bettany, joins us. It's been far too long. Hello, Paul. Hey, how are you doing? I'm doing very well. It's Good. been a very, very long time since you were on this show. Has it? How long ago is it? Well, I think it was for blood, actually. Ah, yeah. So that's, what, is that three years now? Well, or two cons years? and considering that we've been on your side... For a like forever, I know. 
Uh, I know, you've always been on my side. I've, I, I've enjoyed that. Uh, gangster number one, we're on your side. Master and Commander, yes. we're on your side. In fact, Mark made a point of telling you, that for that and a beautiful mind, that you acted Russell off the screen. Oh, bless him. Never, never shy of saying something controversial. We even quite like Wimbledon. God bless you. And You and my mum. Yeah, I'm not sure Mark found anything good to say about the Da Vinci Code, but this is, this is all ancient history now. And he liked Transcendence. So look, anyway, it's, it's very good to have you on the show. And uh, and Mordecai is the new movie, another movie that you've done uh, with Johnny Depp. So just, just explain who this character is and where you fit in with this uh, interesting uh, group of performers. I'm Mordecai's um, butler, driver, thug, assassin. And um, it's it comes from a sort of long tradition, I think, of, uh, of comedy duos that the, of the, the, the clever servant and stupid master that go back to Roman comedy and Shakespeare and, you know, all the way through to Cluzo with Cato and, and, um, and so on. And it's a, it's a really rich... Uh, uh, it's a a really rich area of comedy to work in we had you know so much fun and I I think Jock is a firm believer in the uh, class system and his place in the universe and his job however inept and irritatingly um, cowardly his his master might be it's, Mm -hmm. it's Jock's job to be to look after him even if that means being shot in the face by his master and the, uh, this is Jock Strap, your character. <laughs> Jock Strap, exactly, from yeah. Hoxton. <laughs> so, um, and your boss is Johnny Depp. So now the, these, I haven't read any of the books. In fact, I was unaware of the, uh, uh, is it Cyril Bonfig, Bonfiglioli? Yes, Bonfiglioli. Yeah. yeah, and they're really, I really would recommend you read them. They're, they're a real guilty pleasure. Are they Woodhouseian? Um, is it sort of Jeeves and Worcester, that kind of thing? But, but on acid. Well, what happened was uh, I was making Transcendence with Johnny and, and there were no jokes in Transcendence. I don't no, know. I remember. Um, so I needed a little bit of cheering up and he dropped these books off um, and they are, you just you just storm through them. They're so funny and naughty and irreverent. And uh, yeah, they're, yeah, they're like a, a punk Jeeves and Worcester. So Fear and Loathing with P.G. Woodhouse. Exactly. That, that kind of thing. <laughs> That's and exactly I, right. When it's mm. when the movie starts, and I, I interviewed Johnny Depp. I've just interviewed him the once, which was for Sleepy Hollow, right. which is uh, nineteen ninety nine, something like that. And at the time, he was obsessed with uh, the Far Show, and yeah. he just wanted to talk about uh, British comedy. And I remember thinking at the time, this was unusual. It's not what you got from Hollywood superstars uh, like. Like Johnny Depp, so then mm. he's so the very first thing that we hear in, in Mordecai is what sounds like a Paul Whitehouse impression, which then turns out to be Johnny Depp uh, playing this kind of really posh guy, and then Paul Whitehouse turns up later in the movie. I mean, how, absolutely. How, how did that come over for you? I mean, do you, do you think that's what a lot of British audiences will make of that? I, I you know, I think it's got a. I think the, what's even stranger than a Hollywood movie star uh, being obsessed with British comedy. You know, I mean, he spent a lot of time in England, but it, it started much early, earlier. That he, it, what's really strange is a, is a, uh, you know, a, a poor kid who wants to be a guitar player from Kentucky. 
getting into, you know, Ealing comedies. You know, he's obsessed. He's also obsessed with Terry Thomas and 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 Peter Sellers. And, you know, it's um, wow. it, it, it's really it, it, British comedies really fascinate. And Alec Guinness, you know, so he's he, he loves that um, that era of uh, of British madcap comedy. And so I think, it, you know, his love for the far show came after um, a real um, um, love of um, British comedy. I mean, Terry Thomas is the, the, the teeth in, yes. of Mordecai are a, 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 a homage to Terry Thomas. And just a word about the moustache, because yeah. it's, it's on all the posters. In fact, he's even got Gwyneth Paltrow wearing a similar uh, moustache and he, he just seem, he does seem to be particular it's like a running it's a running joke obviously through through the movie but he does seem to be particularly obsessed with how he is groomed yes i think he um he feels that he has a sort of family obligation to grow a moustache and that every mordecai before him has had a moustache and that he is now of an age where a moustache feels appropriate and um it becomes a sort of line in the sand over which he will not cross, and nor will his wife, um, that he needs to shave it and that he won't shave it. And it's, um, you know, despite the, 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 this aristocratic couple, you know, being uh, about to be thrown, you know, into the poorhouse, they're in penury, they, um, the real problem in their marriage seems to be this, this moustache. Is, is, is playing jockstrap um, quite undemanding, would you say? It must be enormously enjoyable, but it... You know. Yeah, I mean, it was... Um, once you sort of set up the parameters for who he is and what he likes to do, and, and you know, you, he's, a very, he's a very simple man, and it's, um, it's, just, it's, it's just fun to go on set and play sometime without a great deal of, you know, responsibility for kind of carrying some major theme. You know, it's just a madcap romp, and yes. I, I, I haven't ever got to do that in my in my work i say work <laughs> well no but, but it's you know. interesting and looking at your work there's a degree for it for which this year will be on the one hand this and on the other hand that so this morning i was watching shelter yeah. uh, which is this movie that you've written and, uh, and directed uh, starring uh, your other half jennifer connelly and anthony mackie and i thought it was just wonderful uh, oh thanks so I mean, the, you saw it yes 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 I, oh, wow. uh, I, I, I watched it this morning and i the the con I mean you, you you've lived in New York for a for a while but you were filming bits of New York City I mean I felt I was sort of like a homeless person in New York City after about fifteen minutes you were taking me to places I hadn't been before right yeah uh, well I, you know is it is um yeah I'm really proud of it it's going to come out late this year um you know we made it in twenty one days for, for for very very little money because people don't tend to want to give you money to make a film about a homeless junkie and a homeless Muslim guy, you know, <laughs> homeless Muslim Nigeria, Nigerian, and, 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 and people shy away from giving you lots of money to make that film for some reason, I don't know why. But, um, yeah, I, I, um, I wanted to make a film, I started thinking about what I'd like to make a film about, and I thought I'd rather, looking at the world around me, like to make a film that's about judgment and how in a world of increasing grey area, as far as I'm concerned, we seem to get more and more entrenched in black and white positions, but I didn't know how to do that. And there was this couple, a homeless couple who lived outside my building, my neighbours, so to speak. And, um, you know, I would try to talk to them uh, uh, every morning on the way on the school run with my 
my children and we, we, we didn't get very far and I'm ashamed to say that they became more and more invisible and, and more and more a part of the landscape in which I lived until I just didn't really see them. And uh, then Hurricane Sandy happened in New York City and I live right on the river so there was a mandatory evacuation and uh, in the mayhem of getting my three children and my cat and my the dumbest dog in new york city <laughs> into a car and head to higher ground i didn't stop once to think about them and i um when we came back i never saw them again and i i started to wonder what their life was and i thought perhaps this was a, a good way to talk about judgment because I, I didn't want to make a film that was a polemic about homelessness being bad or drug addiction being bad or because every decent human being knows that it is, you know. I, I, I wanted to, I wanted to tell a slightly different story. Yeah, and and as it's your movie and you've written it and you've directed it, uh, presumably there's bits of the that whole show which were new to you. So pre-production and post-production, you obviously know about, but being involved that deeply was that. Was, it, did it make you want to go back and do it again or not? Yes, I, I, I will. Um, um, you're absolutely right. Post-production, you uh, as an actor know something about because you come into loop or dub or uh, do, you know, or occasionally you're shown early cuts of the movie. Um, so you have a, a sense of the rhythm of that. Um, what I didn't know anything about was prep, um, pre-production, and that was... That was ghastly because I, <laughs> I just felt lost. I thought I've made the biggest mistake of my life. It, it just seemed to be a lot of people telling me what I couldn't do, and nobody telling me what I could do. And um, and then I, you know, the night before, I had this sleepless night before we started the first day of photography, and I got up in the morning, was feeling sick to my stomach with nerves. And then I walked onto the set, and there were things that I've kind of grown up around like canvas chairs and, and monitors and cables and cameras and makeup people and I, then I felt totally at home it was an incredible incredible experience and I loved and I didn't know whether I would but I loved uh, editorial I loved that portion of it and then but, and then with and then with one bound uh, we go from there to uh, the, the new Avengers movie where you yeah. play the vision and I know that there is because you know, we were trying to get something uh, out of Donald uh, the other day, Donald Gleeson, about the Star Wars film. You know, well, you know, frankly, good luck with that. So all I'll say is, and then it's the Avengers, isn't it, Paul? It is the Avengers, isn't it, Paul? Yes, it is the Avengers. And, and, and here's the... How does, well, tell us about the ending. <laughs> Very good, yeah. Um, whenever, I, whenever I start to talk about the Avengers, I see a red dot appear on my chest. I can tell you, I you know, it was it was it was um, it was strange because I came from a movie where I couldn't afford two cameras, uh, making my movie where I couldn't afford two cameras, going to the biggest sets I've ever seen in my life. It, uh, with drone ca helicopter cameras flying around buildings. I mean, it, it was... And, and that stuff's great too. You know, I, I, I felt like a kid on a movie set again for the first time. It was, really, it was a really extraordinary experience in its own, in its own way. 
Paul, we're out of time. We appreciate uh, everything you've given us. Thank you very much indeed. Don't leave it so long next time, but we look forward to uh, Avengers. People should look out for Shelter when that comes out in a few months' time. Paul Bettany, thank you. Thanks so much. He's a decent cove. Yeah, he's a genuinely lovely man. He came on the programme the first time um, just... I think it was just after he worked on the, the Lars von Trier film and he told the story about working on with, with Lars von Trier and Dogville and what, a, what an extremely difficult experience that was. Lars at the sort of the top of his prankster-ishness and he's been a, yeah, he's been a regular guest and, and always a good guest. And I'm really looking forward to Shelter because you've seen Shelter yes. and, we, and it sounds like a really interesting film. Well, he, sounds, interesting. he sounds passionate about it. So there's three things there. There's Mordecai and your review of that would be... A, we have to do it after the because we can't do it in two minutes. Because yeah. there's so much to say. The Shelter, which is this thing which he's, as you just said, he's got, got some finance together, wrote and directed uh, himself and clearly feels very passionately about Absolutely. It. And then this huge blockbuster, uh, which is sort of guaranteed to be huge. In fact, on that subject, Toby Martin, who is not listening to the show until October... Oh, in case we have a block. He's, he's, <laughs> no, he's stockpiling all future episodes for complicated reasons. Okay. Anyway, these are his predictions mm-hmm. uh, about the cinema world in October this year. Okay. Number one, Avengers: Age of Ultron, which we've just been talking about, will have uh, broken all known box office records despite being lambasted by Mark for overlong action sequences. Mark will be, <laughs> Mark will be chanting nine and a half more years. The release of Fifty Shades of Grey will polarize Wittertainees. Half of the listeners will love it. Men will hate it. Simon will not have watched Jeremy. In a comic relief skit, Mark will appear in an EastEnders pub brawl with Danny Dyer. Uh, not only will Night at the Museum 4 have been commissioned, it will have been filmed, released, panned and made Night at the Museum 5 absolutely inevitable. And if you could just say, don't worry, it's only tur- turbulence, that would be quite nice. Thank you very much indeed. Don't worry, gonna basically, you'll be listening to these all the way through okay. uh, a very long flight. Don't worry, it's only turbulence. Which he's not looking forward to uh, at all. OK. Uh, so if you want to know what... I, my guess is that you know exactly what Mark is going to think about Mordecai, just from the kind of the tone of voice and the harumphing and the heavy breathing which has accompanied its every reference. But th- that review will be coming up uh, in the next hour, along with reviews of these films. Ex Machina, The Gambler, Most Violent Year, Beyond Clueless and more. The top news on Five Live this hour. Broadcasters say they'll empty chair any leaders who decline to take part in TV election they'll debates. empty chair. Hey. Yeah, go on. Uh, welcome. It's hour two of the BBC's flagship film show, uh, Nigel in Edinburgh. Dear MC Mayo and Mark still on the mic, that accidental interruption of the newsreader when reacting to the use of empty chair as a verb is probably a slight embarrassment to you, but it happens to be exactly what I was thinking. News (laughs) nil, Mark and audience one. Not just me then. Okay. No. It's it's going to be a new feature, actually, whereby we make sarcastic comments about stuff that happens in the news. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's just been approved. It's just just been been approved. Okay, fine. uh, John Bainbridge, uh, I'm with Mark. Did empty chair become a verb about the same time as medal? Somebody tweeted me to say, I, you, you are now free to use science oven as a verb. Alec Meredith, can we have Simon sarcastically repeating phrases from every news story, please? <laughs> it wasn't Simon. It wasn't me. No, you said you're familiar with the phrase. Yes, to empty chair. Yes, that's right. I mean, Roy Hattersley was empty chaired when he didn't turn up on Have I Got News For You. And it, mm-hmm. but, OK, fine. No, but, I understand. I get equally, it now. But, it, but I mean, it, I'm sorry. It's, I'm, I'm clearly a long way behind the times. I mean, to, to my ear, you might as well have said they'd be nest of tabled. I mean, I don't, you know. But if... You, if, if so if you empty chair somebody, yes. right, so then you're just going to go ahead with an, with an empty, empty chair. chair. Fine, now I've got it. But if the Prime Minister turns up, yes. is he then going to be chaired? Is that, does that mean he's going to be full chaired? He's going to be occupied? Is he going to be reclining? 
Can I say asking me is clearly the no. wrong thing? I'm the guy who just. <laughs> anyway, empty chair. Yeah, apologies. I, I empty you know, chair, you empty chair. We empty chair. It. We shall empty chair. They have empty chair. They were in the process of empty chairing. That's now, past, it, past imperfect, isn't it? Isn't I know. It? The present, wasn't it past, the present continuous? No, they were in oh, the I process see. of empty oh, chairing. Isn't that past if I am if I transitive. Am, if I empty chair you, mm -hmm. I could be in the process of empty chairing you. Yes, that's pre is that present continuous. I have. I read in the future. You will have been empty chaired. The English language is a wonderful thing, isn't it? It is, but not the way we exercise. <laughs> no, it isn't. Anyway, so, so anyway, anyway if I, I, I feel like I've learned something, and I apologise for being completely uh, oblivious to the term. It's that red light. If it's on, no, I don't know. Say now. Thank you. I know. I just, I just, you just want. I just, I just knew. I just. Yeah. Anyway, eight five zero five eight. We are going to be talking <clears> about <throat> other movies, by the way, including Ex Machina, which is uh, on the way. However, just before the news. Uh, you'll have heard from Paul Bettany talking about uh, Mort Decay. You may well have seen the poster, which features himself and Johnny Depp and Gwyneth Paltrow wearing ridiculous moustaches. Mm -hmm. Anyway, if you thought that was crazy, you wait till you hear what Mark has to say. OK, well, I mean, I have to be honest, I hated it. Um, it's directed by David Cup, who is probably better known as a writer and, you know, is an occasional director. And um, based on a series of novels by uh, Kirill or Cyril um, Bofilioli, um, this particularly on Don't Point That Thing at Me, which was a line which Gwyneth Paltrow delivered in the clip that was at the beginning of that interview. And I'm, a, as you know, a huge Paul Bettany fan. I was one of the people who absolutely loved Transcendence. Um, it's true, there are not many jokes in Transcendence, although I think there are some, and I still absolutely love that film. I, my biggest problem with uh, Mordecai was I thought it was insufferable and unfunny. From the opening moments that I realised that Johnny Depp was going to be doing that, you know, on the one hand, it's, 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 a, it's a sort of melange of Terry Thomas and the 13th Duke of Wimborne uh, as done Whitehouse. by Paul Whitehouse. Yeah but without the comic charm of either. And it is a comic performance. So the story is, I mean, you, I, you kind of covered this in the interview, but the story is basically he's a sort of rogue art trader and a Goya has gone missing and he is uh, called upon by the police in the person of Ewan McGregor, who is in love with his wife, uh, Gwyneth Paltrow, Mordecai's wife, not... Uh, your doesn't matter. Wife. Doesn't, you're right. Actually, Whatever. you know what? Whatevs. It yeah, doesn't exactly. matter. And uh, so they go from uh, London to uh, Rome and all the rest of it. And what was that? Was that a whatever sign? It was a W. Okay, fine. Yeah. I wasn't sure what that meant. Keep it, it short. Or that no, meant you're webcam. bombing the news. Or I didn't know what exactly what that meant. So fine. Um, and as soon as he started doing that voice, I thought, is he going to do that all the way through the film? And then you realise about 30 seconds in the year he is yes, going to do is, that all the way yes. through the film. And then, you, and then you start seeing his physical performance. And it is a physical performance and a... The, you know, I always had a problem with Captain Jack Sparrow. Was it always looked to me like Johnny Depp was being directed by somebody who wasn't a strong enough director to say, no, just rein that in, for heaven's sake. Well, in comparison with Mordecai, uh, Captain Jack Sparrow is a savage understudy, a savage uh, uh, study in Bergman-esque understatement. I mean, it is a gurning, grinning, you know, mustachioed, uh, pantomime performance in which everything is turned up to 11 stupid. And it starts to become irritating about 30 seconds into the film. And the problem with it is that, for a start, I mean, it, does, it doesn't have a... Um, any comic touch in its direction. The, the direction is sort of, you know, very sort of bang, 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 bang in your face rather than having any lightness. It's interesting because uh, there's, there's a Marx Brothers season on at the moment with the, that the South Bank are doing. And, you know, you watch a Marx Brothers film in the same week as you watch Mordecai and you go, OK, fun. So on the one hand, funny. On the other hand, not funny. Now, uh, Paul Bettany, 
I just sort of see in the film kind of wincing his way through that p- performance as jockstrap. He does it perfectly fine, but the, it, but it's it's a thankless task because the movie itself isn't funny. Gwyneth Paltrow and Ewan McGregor are an abyss of unfunny. As uh, you know, she, as he's she's the wife and he's the police. Agent I think she's they have the best thing in it. Really? Yeah. Yikes. Yeah. Okay. Fine. Well, in that case, uh, I well, for that, no, in fact, if you think that Gwyneth Paltrow is the best thing in Mordecai, I then I think that that should go. Well, on. I think thing is, Paul, if it, uh, the three main characters are Gwyneth Paltrow, Johnny Depp, yeah, and the three main characters in Mordecai are Johnny Depp, Johnny Depp, Johnny Depp, and Johnny Depp. Yes. There is there is not a moment when Johnny Depp isn't. Look, I'm doing the Mordecai thing. Everything is turned up to 11. I once saw a movie which had Terry Thomas in it, and I think that's hysterically funny. I'm going to throw some poses, and, and it's just, just like, just, just dial it down, man. I mean, it's, you know. Anyway, sorry, you were saying? I'm going to empty chair you if you carry on. Oh, like yeah, that. okay, fine. There, the amount of flappy hand action going on there, there was like a gale which was moving out of this studio and into Rory Kethlin Jones's studio. No, that stuff about I am wearing a moustache and this joke will go on for an awfully long time. <laughs> anyway, but that's but that speech. I don't know if we can even play. But the the, the, the op- opening speech, the opening thing. It's like a, a he's talking to a couple of gangsters uh, in a casino, and by the by the time he's finished it, you're already annoyed, mm-hmm. which is a a problem, really, given yeah. that it's barely started. And then somebody attempts to um, to do him in and fails. And you realise that he's indestructible and that that character is going to... Now, I haven't read the books, and it is entirely possible, as Paul Bettany says, the books are hilarious. Um, uh, John Feltheimer, who's the chairman of Lionsgate, says that this has franchise written all over it. No, it doesn't. <laughs> it has something written <laughs> over it. <laughs> but, but the word isn't franchise. There is, however, one good gag in the in the film... Uh, turn off if you don't want to hear it. If you want to go and see the film and laugh at one gag... Is this a spoiler? It's the one good gag, OK? So, the one good gag is he checks into the Standard Hotel in Los Angeles, which is this unbelievably horrible hip hotel, which I have actually stayed in, and it's horrible. And he goes up to the desk and he orders a bucket of ice and a bulldozer. And that's why, it. And why is that funny? Because if you know the Standard Hotel, that's... Yeah, well... Actually, we don't. Fine. So in that case, funny? Simon, for most people, there are no funny jokes well, in the film. Explain store. why is it funny? I because the standard hotel, a bucket of ice, and a bulldozer. Yeah, you said that before. Because but why it's is an it funny? ugly thing. It is an ugly. It is an. Uh, it is, where, where does that come from? That comes from uh, Young Frankenstein. Elliot is an ugly thing. I actually haven't got a clue what you're talking no, but, about now. But, okay, anyway. but that what you've seen, Young Frankenstein. I have. Yes. Yeah. When you know, it's. it's oh, that, never mind. Never it? mind. Tell me, did you laugh in yes, not that? There are there are a couple of okay. Uh, what did yeah, you laugh well, at? There, uh, the exchanges with Paul Bettany, who's sort of far more knowing and sort of knows exactly what. Uh, mainly, it was Paul the exchanges Bettany's between Paul Bettany and Gwyneth Paltrow. Okay, Paul Bettany's better than Gwyneth Paltrow. Well, like I said to him in the interview, it's not really the most demanding of roles that he's that he's actually taken. No. So I think he's doing it because he's mates with JD. Fine. And, you know, I, it, it looks like they had a lot of fun making it, which is always a recipe for disaster yes, when it comes to comedy because most really fun, funny comedies actually. are not fun to make. And I'm, I, I'm really sorry. I can't lie about it. Some people often say, oh, you know, you've got your preferences just because, you know, just because uh, uh, Wally Fister made, made uh, Transcendence, you're going to like it because you like him. But I love Paul Bettany. I hated Mordecai. Okay, here's the. Just so, to be clear, going to play you the. This is, here's the I opening. I want to see that other film he made. This is, this is where the movie, yeah, Shelter, which is Shelter, uh, which is very good. I think he's coming sounds out great. later in the year, which yeah. is which is very good. Here's the opening of the film. Here's the speech from the beginning of the film. 
As you may well know, I am many things. An art dealer, an accomplished fencer, fair shot with most weapons. I am loved and respected by all who know me. Slightly. But I have always felt there is something missing, you see. Some final piece of my personal puzzle. I needed something bold, distinctive. The work of art with which I could declare to the heavens... I am Lord Charlie Mordecai, and this little bit of magic is my moustache. Yeah. Now, I think that's... I think he, I, Terry Thomas, yes, but he's he's channelling Paul Whitehouse, isn't he? which is why Paul Whitehouse, Paul Whitehouse is in the movie. turns up, and when Paul Whitehouse turns up, he turns up doing a funny foreign voice in order to do... Because if he did that voice, you'd go, oh, can we, can we watch Paul Whitehouse doing that voice instead of... Anyway. I mean, you know... Uh, I have been a big Johnny Depp fan in the past. I've been a big Johnny Depp defender in the past, but he's not here. He's where? He's what? Not here. What? You're not going to be a fan of it here. What, what, what voice did you do that in? Okay, fine. Uh, but yeah, I think no, it was I'm just. <laughs> yes, belady. Inigo Roberts, who's 16. Uh, we're moving on, by the way, already. Good. You guys love having balanced arguments, so please, can you read this out? Okay. The headline, the, the email is titled "A Thoughtful Defense of Michael Bay." Okay. I, was going, I was going to wait for the release of a film relevant to my message, but the person in question is such a ubiquitous name of shame in the programme that I figured any week is a good week, and therefore I would like to put forward my defence of Mr Michael Bay. So actually we haven't mentioned him at all, but here we go, so we mentioned him oh. now. Now Mark made much of the, uh, the note Mr Bay sent to projectionists asking to turn the brightness up to full when showing his new movie, but I would argue that this simply proves the love and care he puts into his projects. What other director of blockbuster action films would even bother to send this letter? Yes, I would go uh, so far as to say, as far as saying, Bay is an auteur. And though this term doesn't necessarily connote, denote even mm-hmm. there. Correction. Mm. It is a word that relates purely to the cinematic element of his films rather than the commercial. Bay's touch is distinctive, and he clearly cares about the aesthetic of his films, shown by the constant use of the magic hour. Bay takes pride in he the films. The magic hour. Magic hour. Bay takes pride in the films he makes and his own style. Furthermore, I would argue that he also cares for his audience. On his Wikipedia page, there is a quote from him in response to his critics saying. I make movies for teenage boys. Oh dear, what a crime. Though misguided in his knowledge of teenage boys, he attempts to give them what they want at flicks. Big fighting robots and well-formed derrieres. He doesn't manipulate them like those repellent YA dystopias which play on kids' insecurities and anxieties. He makes something they will love and is completely uncynical about how he goes about it. So I say this to you, fellas. Mm-hmm. Please put someone else on the naughty step. If you need any suggestions, Martin Scorsese for his fetish and misogynistic gangsters and their cruel treatment of waiters' feet. A very well-argued uh, piece. Uh, in response to Michael Bay saying, you know, I make movies for teenage boys, uh, I do film reviews for grown-ups. So there we go. Inigo Roberts, we appreciate your email. No, no actually, that was... That was in, in fact, I, I do agree with you about him being an auteur. Um, this was a line that Robbie Collin was uh, uh, putting forward when he, when he stood in on, on the show. And I, and I think it's right. I mean, if you say an auteur is uh, a director who inflects every element of the film with their distinctive personality throughout a, you know, a body of work over more than one film. I mean, he is an auteur. He's a terrible auteur, but he is an auteur. And, I mean, there are many auteurs whose work I don't like at all. I mean, Jean-Luc Godard is an auteur, and I can't stand his films either. So, um, so yes, I would not deny that Michael Bay is an auteur. It's 
320. Uh, you can email mayo at bbc.co.uk if you wish uh, to join in. What else is out so, other than uh, Mordecai, just in case we give that a miss? Ex Machina, um, Donald Gleeson came on the programme uh, last week and you interviewed him about uh, about his role in Ex Machina. So Ex Machina is uh, written and directed by Alex Garland, who in the past has is the novelist who wrote The Beach. He wrote a very good novella called The Coma. He did screenplay for 28 Days Later, the adaptation of Ishiguro's uh, Never Let Me Go. And uh, now he is... He's, you know, in a way, you could describe this uh, as, a, as an auteurist film because every element of it is inflected by his uh, creative personality. So the story is, as you said in the interview with Donald Gleeson, it's virtually a three-hander. Actually, there are more than three characters in it, but it is largely a three-hander. So Donald Gleeson is a young sort of IT nerd who wins the first prize to go and spend a week in the remote home of his CEO, the guy who's uh, made his fortune setting up the Blue Book uh, search engine. Um, the remoteness is actually Norway, although it's kept deliberately sort of non-specific. He ends up there and he's told very quickly that he's going to be there for a week. He meets um, uh, his boss, who's a brilliant play by Oscar Isaac in one of two uh, roles in films out this week. And uh, Oscar Isaac, who's been described as sort of inflected with the, the Kurtz character, seems to have gone slightly native and seems to be slightly bonkers, is partying on his own, as far as we can tell, and says to Donald Gleeson that what he wants him to do is to test his latest invention. Give it the ultimate test. Here's a clip. Do you know what the Turing test is? Yeah. I know what the Turing test is. It's when a human interacts with a computer. And if the human doesn't know they're interacting with a computer, the test is passed. And what does the pass tell us? That the computer has artificial intelligence. Are you building an AI? I've already built one. And over the next few days, you're going to be the human component in the Turing test. That's right, Caleb. You got it. Because if that test is passed, you are dead center of the greatest scientific event in the history of man. If you've created a conscious machine, it's not the history of man. That's the history of God's. And that's a sentence which will be turned around by Nathan later on in the drama. So the film is a very interesting uh, case. I'm very enjoyable, very, very stylish, and I like it very much. Um, uh, there's a moment in it in which... So the, the, the robot, the artificial intelligence called Ava, is played by Alicia Vikander, and it's a physical performance that she has this human head and human hands, and yet the rest of her body is a sort of cyborg structure in which you can literally, literally see right through the artifice of humanity. And... Uh, that performance is constructed both by her with her own sort of balletic physicality and also um, by Double Negative, the uh, special effects people who've done a fantastic job in creating this sort of translucent uh, sort of cyborg torso in which you can see the insides of the cyborg working, but it's very sort of understated. It's also very beautiful. It's kind of this kind of bluish light and this symphony of whispered gyroscopic sound as she moves. And, and I'm just going to write that one down. A symphony... Of whispered microscopic... Gyroscopic. Gyroscopic. You know, it sounds like sounds whirring gyroscopes. Nice. And, but you, you know what I mean. I mean, I know that you're taking the bit because that sounds pretentious, no, but, it, but actually, you know, you know exactly what I mean. It's, as she, she does these, these very, very sort of natural, but just 
her performance is just on that brink of natural and unnatural. I mean, if you imagine Westworld, like, dialed down 99%, it's like that. And it's a, it's a terrific performance. And actually, I think she's... I mean, I think she's a brilliant actress. She's in Testament of Youth, obviously. And um, she actually, she appears to be in every release that's out for the next few weeks. And she is wonderful. Won the Kermode Award a couple of years ago for... I'm uh, sure she talks about that all the time. I think she talks about it, about yeah. nothing else. So she's brilliant. Um, the other two performances, you have... Uh, Oscar Isaac as Nathan, who is this kind of bulked up, slightly bear-like figure, who when you meet him, he's uh, punching a bag and he's trying to work out. He said, I'm sorry, I had a really, really hard night last night, you know, a really, really tied one on. And Donald Gleeson says, oh, you know, it must have been a great party. And he says, what party? He's a man who parties alone. He's a man who is clearly... And he, you get that sense in his conversation that he's... he's he has gone slightly off the map. He is he has lost touch with his own humanity, and something is you know, there is there's something about him which is both uh, self-aggrandizing and deliberately duplicitous. And you never quite know how to read him. And then you have Donald Gleeson, who at the beginning of it looks like this most sort of wide-eyed IT waif, somebody completely lost in this extraordinary modernist architecture of his CEO's home. But during his his conversations with Alicia Vikander's Ava, he starts to show his true colours. And actually, in a way, the film is, as you rightly described it, it's a three-hander in which you never quite know what anybody's motives are, you never quite know what anybody wants, what anybody needs, what anybody is trying to do. And actually the central um, the central uh, thesis of it is that a dem- one of the demonstrations of artificial intelligence, of consciousness, of singularity, would be attraction. And the rules of attraction are very much brought into play. It's demonstrated, you know, is a machine thinking if a machine can be attracted and attractive. Actually, attracted is the more important thing. You know, can it itself, and there's some of these, this will tie us back to movies like Blade Runner, which wonders about whether or not replicants have souls and replicants can fall in love. It will tie us back to AI, in which there's that big discussion at the beginning of AI, in which William Hurt says the, the great challenge is to make a robot that can love and be loved as, you know, some sort of demonstration of moving beyond what you just think of robotics. And then there's a question at the minute when Donald Gleeson says, well, why did you, you know, why sexualise her? Why, why give her a gender? Why give her, give her a face? Why, why give her this flirtation? Did you programme her to be flirtatious? And the answer is twofold. The answer is, on the one hand, well, look, you know, if we're talking about um, machines becoming uh, natural or, you know, achieving that singularity, every every impulse in nature is in some way driven by reproduction and attraction and you can't write it out, of the, and so that's important. And the, and the second answer is, hey, it's fun. And actually, that's sort of true of the whole film, is that on the, it deals with these kind of weighty issues about, about intelligence, about artificial and natural intelligence, and about duplicity and about what you keep covered and what you keep what you, and what you show but it also does it in the way it is at heart a kind of very very stylish science fiction b picture which is not above descending into you know uh exploitation uh what does dis- that mean well there are there are moments in it in which it, in which you know there are these sort of demonst- there are these uh, displays of uh in inverted commas artificial female flesh and so what the movie is doing is it's saying, on the one hand, look, we're talking about artificial intelligence, we're talking about the same, we're doing that. But on the other hand, the, the, there are things on screen which refer to a B-movie tradition, which is exploitation, which is to do with let's have a certain amount of nudity, let's have a certain amount of you know, titillation on screen. It, it is doing all those things. And it's funny that when people are talking about the film, sometimes people sort of disavow that. I mean, it is a particularly generic thing to disavow that, but it is certainly a part of it. There are certain moments in it which I felt a little bit uncomfortable about it being some, I think you did as well. You, you think, OK, is that... Well, it's hard, it's hard 
to talk about it because it's because this sequence is towards the end of yeah, the yeah, movie. Yeah, but, yeah, I did, so, yeah. but I did, but I, I, I wondered if it if it got leery at once. Yeah, yeah, yes, exactly. So, uh, and I think that in that respect, it has a very B movie sensibility. However, I like B movies and I like science fiction films, and I think that what it does is, firstly, it, it understands its science fiction heritage. Secondly, it plays that relationship between those three characters really, really well. Thirdly, Alicia Vikander is such a strong character that she, that. Actually, she steals the movie out mm -hmm. from under everybody else's. And I think her, the creation of her as Ava and what she does with that role. I mean, you could say that on one level, this is, um, this is a rethinking of the themes of her in which Joaquin Phoenix's character falls in love with a computer program despite knowing that it's an operating system. And uh, what we're told here is the real Turing test here is if you can relate to Ava as a human, even though you can see that she's a robot. I mean, actually, one of the, 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 there's a moment in which Donald Gleason's character says, but I, hang on, this won't work. The whole point of the Turing test is that you can't see whether it's a robot or a human. And Nathan replies, no, the point is she looks like a robot. And that's the real test. The real test is, will you fall for her when she looks like a robot? And then the subset of that is, will she fall for you? I think it's really, really visually stylish. I think Alex Garland appears to have arrived in the director's chair fully formed as a filmmaker. I mean, it's perhaps unsurprising because he has dealt with these themes before. To some extent, in Never Let Me Go, also, I think, 28 Days Later, which is that whole life-death thing in coma, which is conscious, unconscious. I mean, these are ideas that he's been repetitively dealing with, but I think he does them... He, he does it really well. He's, he's, he's a natural filmmaker. He is blessed with three terrific performances. Um, the disco dancing moment is one of the creepiest disco dancing sequences I've seen. To get down uh, Saturday night will never sound the same to you again. And I would thoroughly recommend it. Uh, Tom, uh, Tom in Wandsworth <clears throat> just had the thrill of watching a late screening of Ex Machina, a razor-sharp, intelligent, often witty script backed up by three blistering central performances. Oscar Isaacs is superb as the duplicitous, beer-swilling tech genius. Alicia Vikander totally mesmerising as AI Ava. The film looks and sounds menacingly beautiful. Alex Garland has clearly learned a few things from Danny Boyle along the way and pulled off a stunning debut. Mark should give this two big, fat bass players thumbs up. <laughs> Chris in Korea, uh, I know you have to be either an 11-year-old genius, a film star or Shakespeare to be a contributor on your show, but I just thought I'd tell you that I think Ex Machina is, in my opinion, a better film than 2001 and, as a predictor of the evolution of AI. It's also a fantastic thriller and superbly made. Brian, outside Edinburgh, uh, just back from an advanced screening of Ex Machina and what a solidly decent piece of Cy Plausible it was. For Garland's director... Cy Plausible, Cy Plausible. That's, that's a good... I, yeah, that's that's new. I like that. For Garland's director debut it showed a great sense of style and a really lean stripped down narrative as we essentially have three main characters in a house for the whole of the story and three wonderful main performances inside it. Alicia Vikander is wonderful as the inquisitive capricious female android turning the Turing test back on the gobsmacked Donald Gleeson in a way that makes him take some rather drastic action to check that he himself is no okay, robot. Okay, 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 okay. And Oscar Isaac as the skin crawling overbearing manipulative alpha hipster reclusive Genius. Still chewing over my feelings on the ending and already waiting uh, and wanting a second viewing. Say so two words. Voigtkampf. Why would you say that? Well, people who have seen Blade Runner understand why. Voigtkampf. Thank you. 
Ben in Manchester, um, having managed to avoid most of the trailers for the film, I really had no idea what to expect from Ex Machina. I have to say that I thought it was absolutely excellent. I was gripped from the beginning and loved the overall story with its questions of nature versus nurture, what it means to be human and the dangers of playing God. The turns of the plot kept me on the edge of my seat throughout and parts of the film were the right side of creepy. It kept me guessing. The film felt really claustrophobic, being all set in one stunning location and the three actors were superb. The biggest praise has to be reserved for Oscar Isaac, who, in what could have been played stereotypically and easily over the top, he brings humanity, humour and, at times, the right amount of fear uh, to the role. Right, quickly answer a, uh, a question to which statement on Twitter from Martin Coote. Is she cyborg or android? Cyborgs comprise organic components as well as mechanical. Yeah, that's actually kind of the reason that I use it is because there is a discussion about... Uh, he says, is this the software? And he says, no, it's the wetware, because he talks about it being uh, involving organic material. That's So it's cyborgy. Don't forget to check out uh, the website, look at our pages then, uh, the playlist section. Uh, we already know some of the tunes that we're going to be adding at the end of today's programme. Florence, so. it's a lovely morning. Florence's mm. sad song. Um, I'm the King, Legal and the Blue Cat. All of those things yeah. are apparently unavailable. Yep. But Aztec, another Aztec camera track has gone on, plus uh, a new empty chair tune, but you'll have to listen to the podcast. <laughs> is there an empty that. chair tune? There is. Uh, Xander in Twickenham. Hello. I am 16. Going long time, on 17. Long time listener, first time emailer. I've just finished uh, my mock GCSEs. Therefore, I have the day off today, as I don't have an exam, meaning I can listen to the show live rather than on the podcast. OK. At the start of the year, me and my family went to see Paddington, followed by The Theory of Everything, uh, on subsequent days, which, is, you have to say, is a pretty good, Very good double bill. I would have emailed sooner, but I've been caught up in revision. You don't need to apologise, and it's fine. You can just get in touch whenever. As a 16-year-old boy, I didn't feel I was the target audience for Paddington, but we walked into the cinema. I noticed that, by average age of the room, I was correct. I, as I sandwiched myself between... 10 and 13 year old sisters uh, my 10 and 13 year old sisters he hasn't got my 10, 10 13 sisters. year old sisters <laughs> that, that would be a biological miracle <laughs> yes. wouldn't it uh, we rolled through the trailers both me and my parents who were sitting behind were slightly nervous that the code of conduct regarding talking and food was going to be broken throughout and all the way through the ads anyway I was wrong because five minutes into the film the whole room was holding on to the bears every word it easily passed the six laugh test within the half hour mark and it struck the correct balance between the slightly scary Nicole Kidman and the fun of the mishaps of a fictional bear yeah I agree the amount of stars playing cameo roles was sort of a British version of the Muppets and I felt the script <laughs> lived up to the cast and Ben Wishaw's voice was perfect it was for perfect, the bear. Yeah. anyway so I'm mentioning that because it's still in the top ten still even though there. a lot of people have seen it months ago it's still there people are to see it just to keep it in the top 10 all year because it's a jolly good film so uh, what else is brand new what else can we go and see so the gambler posters up picture of mark Wahlberg and from the writer of the departed um it's a remake of the 1974 film the original was written by james toback who said that he, he was he was really cross when they started making the um the remake because they hadn't consulted him and i understand his crossness about it it was originally developed as a project for scorsese and dicaprio now it's ended up uh, rupert wyatt who i think is a very good director and um mark Wahlberg. so the story is uh, a young man played by mark Wahlberg is a professor of english a professor of literature pardon me and also in his spare time he's a gambler he has managed to get into huge debt he's a rich kid he's been gambling away the family's money from which he's effectively been cut off he now finds himself with seven days to pay off some hideous debts and he turns to people like loan shark john goodman his clip you drink i don't remember if you drink of course there's drink and drink i drink but i haven't been drunk since reagan was president I got a DUI and in jail, I actually fell down and my pants. 
You don't need to do that twice. I tell you this so you'll know everybody's been there. Everybody's been there. Once. If you're there twice, I can't help you. Which leads me to ask, are you pulling this just now or forever? What's the difference? I need to know if you got the brains to walk when it's time to walk. I've seen you be half a million dollars up. I've been up two and a half million dollars. You still owe large two places you shouldn't. Why do you want door number three? How else do I get out? If I give you this money and you don't pay me back, there are no rules. Do you understand the gravity of your situation? I understand. Good support from John Goodman. Um, terrific, if brief, uh, performance by Jessica Lang as um, the central character's uh, long-suffering mother who is called upon to bail him out, only to allow him to dig himself into an even deeper hole. Completely thankless task for Brie Larson and... Mark Wahlberg. And here's the problem. Firstly, I think uh, Toback's script, James Toback's script, was famously semi-autobiographical. He had indeed taught and gambled, and um, he understood the milieu. Uh, William Monaghan, who is a very fine writer elsewhere, appears to have an utterly tin ear for the, uh, for, for the, for the dialogue here. Mark Wahlberg is the least convincing uh, professor of literature I have ever seen. I mean, it's it's one of those things like Mark Wahlberg is a professor of literature, Meg Ryan is a helicopter pilot. You just go, mm, yeah, really? You're going to have to work very hard to convince me of that. And there are sequences at the very beginning of the movie in which Mark Wahlberg hectors his uh, students on the nature of genius in a way that just had me going, mm, yeah, no, you really have no idea. Is he a you better have- lecturer than Hugh Grant? No. Okay. Thank he you. actually isn't. And crikey moly, that is saying something. No. Hugh Grant in the rewrite was more convincing as a professor of writing, because he's a he's teaching screenwriting, screen yeah, isn't yeah, he? Yeah. Than uh, than Mark Wahlberg, he just he does all this leaping on the desk and holding forth about the nature of genius in a way which is, if anybody, even American academia, right? I mean, I know American academia is slightly more theatrical. I know they call everybody professor. All you have to do is turn up and they call you a professor. I know all that's true, but believe me, um, no. Uh, so that's a big problem. Second problem is that the script is, to say it's overripe uh, would would be to understate its uh, overripeness. Um, thirdly, it it does a peculiar thing, which is that when Toback complained about the, the remake being disrespectful, and I kind of understood it, um, you know, why he did, because it was obviously a po- project that was so personal. I mean, in fact, he should, probably should have embraced it, because what this does is it makes you look at the 1974 Gambler with James Kahn as some kind of masterpiece, which it isn't. I mean, it is an, you know, it is an imperfect work. It's a period, it's a work of its period. And, you know, it is utterly flawed, but if you put it next to this, you go, okay, it's utterly flawed, but it'll stand the test of time. And there, there, it has a sort of cult appeal. And, you know, we all remember seeing it back then and it's sort of self-indulgence it got away with. I'm not a huge James Toback fan, although it's interesting that you look at something like, you know, Fingers and Beat, uh, Beat My Heart Skipped and that sort of transition happening. Um, but uh, Wahlberg's performance is vain, um, which is a shame. I like Mark Wahlberg in a lot of things, but not in this. I think it is very vain, very self-regarding. And in a way, the poster kind of tells you all you need to know. It's like the poster just goes, look, Mark Wahlberg, Paris Specs, Writer of the Departed. On you go. And you go, okay, yep, on we go. 
Well, I'm going to go with uh, TV correspondence then, because TV movie of the week should have been done a couple of minutes ago, but here it is. Mar- Martin oh, Chatterton, which movie will Mark pick as our TV movie of the week? Martin says, The artist, prove if ever it was needed that good acting and a fun script can bring awards and a worldwide audience to a black-and-white silent film. Still waiting for the Blu-ray colourised 3D Weinstein <laughs> cut winging its way depressingly soon. <laughs> well, the Weinsteins were behind the artists, so, you know. Oliver Triggs Bloom. Mark will choose the artist, but enough time has now passed to admit that it was really hyped up. I'll be watching South Park. Uh, Ryan Mulholland. Can't be anything except the departed. Scorsese at his best. Wahlberg at his funniest. And a rare example of the remake being better than the original. Simon Meadows. I'm going out on a limb saying Mark's going to go for classic B-movie sci-fi with The Thing from Another World. Myself, I would go for that or one of my all-time guilty pleasures Footloose. Can we get rid of the term guilty pleasures? Yeah, because there's nothing guilty about liking Footloose at all. If you like stuff, you like stuff. Yeah. That's it. Yeah, and in fact, Footloose, the opening credits of Footloose are one of one of the best opening credit sequences evs. You know, where they're... And they're doing the, the sort of the, the toe-tapping. That's just... It's a brilliant sequence. James, and finally, James Gordon. For me, it would be Perks of a, uh, Being a Wallflower, as I love that film. Mark will absolutely go for either the artist or the thing from another world. What are you going to pick, Dr Mark? Uh, film 4, uh, 23.15 yes, on Sunday. Yes, that sounds about right. Aguirre, Wrath of God. And... Uh, uh, for two reasons. Firstly, because it's um, it's hurts. So- what? Why are you why are you doing that? No, because okay. I tell you what. I'm gonna. I'm. It was it, what it, I was it, expecting. Fine. In order to do, I'm going to do. It's going to be a double bill. Okay, double bill. Film of the week. Film of the week number one. A gear off of God. Uh, Twenty three fifteen. Uh, Sunday, January twenty fifth. And number two. Footloose. On also on film four. It turns out at eighteen forty. Eighteen forty. Monday the twenty sixth. Yeah, that's fine. So you can enjoy Footloose. I'll enjoy Gear of That. Just to demonstrate, it's perfectly possible to enjoy, you know, uh, Kevin Bacon tractor racing alongside uh, A Gear of God, which is one of uh, Herzog's just bestest evs. Uh, Pete in Bingley. Uh, having, this is a, a bit of correspondence about Mordecai, which we did effectively trash uh, about an hour ago. Having read the books, I was rather looking forward to Mordecai, but I'm starting to fear the worst. I think Mordecai, are you, I think you're pronouncing that T... I thought they pronounced the T. I thought they did the T in the clip, didn't they? In, in you can't tell, though, can you? Because his voice okay. is so like this. So it's yeah. impossible to tell it whether really... he's got a T. As I'm Johnny Depp, and I'm just doing this all about It really doesn't matter. I'm starting to fear the worst having heard the clips and your comments. The books are indeed very funny and are broadly farces yes. with a touch of Jeeves and Worcester about them. However, there is a sinister element to them as well. And <laughs> which there is not. And they do the not film. all have happy endings. Mordecai may act like a foolish aristocrat, but underneath there is a certain intelligence and resourcefulness, not to mention an ambivalence to violence. To play him as Terry Thomas, silly ass, is somewhat to miss the point. Mm-hmm. Anyway, thank you very much. It, 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 it does not... <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> It doesn't surprise me that the film has missed the point of the books, and which is why I said very clearly, I haven't read the books, and they may well be brilliant, because you do often get this. Particularly when Paul Bettany was talking about that, he's talking about making transcendence, which it sounded like it was, you know, as he said, it wasn't a lot of laughs. Although I really like it, um, and then he said Johnny Depp dropped the books, uh, the Mordecai books off, and he just and he, and I've read so many people have said the same thing. They really found those Mordecai books really funny. And I really didn't find the film funny at all. 
which makes it even more um, well, I mean, of a fail, even more then, that really, you yeah it? that you suggest that they've just you know completely completely dropped the ball. Incidentally, what's the connection between you know the Pink Panther? I was saying that the guy who's the head of Lionsgate said that this is a pink. This is very much in the vein of the Pink Panther and has franchise written all over it. What's the connection between the Pink Panther and the Exorcist? Oh well, I could hang around for a while, or I could just give in. Shot in the Dark was written by William Peter Blatty. That's what he did before he wrote The Exorcist. That's he a really interesting Pink Panther film. It is quite fact. interesting, yes. Not sure we can recover from that. Anyway, shall we, uh, shall yes. we tr- try something brand new instead? Most Violent Year, which is the new film by J.C. Chander, who made Margin Call with Paul Bettany, which I think you really liked, didn't you? I'm sure I did. OK, fine. Margin Call if and... You, if you say I did, I, I agree with you. Yeah, so Margin Call was a brilliant uh, sort of financial thriller about this this moment when absolute financial implosion is about to happen. You're right, I did. Yeah, and it has a fantastic... Remembered. Yeah, I know you did because we were talking about it earlier today. So, like, you know... Whatever. Grandad. Um, I've never forgotten where I was now. Oh, yes, Grandad. anyway, so, so anyway... <laughs> Stop it. Uh, really terrific financial thriller. And then All Is Lost, which was significant because it was almost wordless. It was uh, Robert Redford on a boat. And at the beginning of it, the boat gets pranged by a, by a floating container that's just, you know, a wash in the ocean. And then over the, the rest of it, you see him attempting to shore the boat up and to not sink without talking. I mean, so it is an almost entirely uh, wordless film. So in the case of this, it's set in 1981 and it owes a debt, I think, to the films of Sidney Lumet. Story is Oscar Isaac in his second uh, performance uh, in a very good movie this week. It's interesting. You could watch this and Ex Machina back to back and actually not be aware that you're watching the same guy and it's not just because the haircut and the clothes are different it's because you know he's a he's a mercurial actor so he plays abel morales colombian born now businessman in 1981 attempting to expand his heating fuel business by buying uh some real estate in brooklyn from which the business can expand however his trucks are being regularly hijacked by whom he is not sure, and he's desperate to find out. But the DA won't help, because actually all the DA is interested in doing is investigating his misdemeanours. He is desperately trying to stay on the right side of the law. There was a, an echo of that, uh, the line, the Al Pacino line in Godfather 3, just when I thought I was out, they pulled me back in. But he is connected to the mob through the fact that his wife, brilliantly played by Jessica Chastain, is the daughter of uh, of an infamous gangster. He, however, is convinced that, that they are set to get the business on the road to respectability, but she's the Lady Macbeth figure, who at one point says to her husband brilliantly, sort it out, because if you don't, I will, and you won't like what'll happen if I get involved. Here's a clip. <laughs> this is probably one you're going to regret. Excuse me? My husband's an honorable man. We're not who you think we are. I think I know your father. Good for you. My husband is not my father. Not even close. So if I were you, I would start treating us with a little more respect or I guarantee he will make it his mission in life to ruin you. Very disrespectful. That's almost inception-like music running in the background. There's a sort of, <coughs> pardon me, synthy organy uh, thing going on there, Alex Ebert, um, who, interestingly enough, when he was talking about the score 
he was talking about, on, you know, on the one hand, because you're trying to place it in 1981, so you're trying to use that electronica inflected sound. But also he was talking about Suicide, you know, the band Suicide, the kind of post-punk, who they were just like a drum machine and a synth. And he talks about that angst uh, being something which inflected the score for this. Um, and it's shot by the the same guy who shot... Um, Ain't Them Body Saints, Bradford Young. And when they did Ain't Them Body Saints, he shot it on 35mm and it had this fantastic sort of nostalgic feel, looked like a Terrence Malick film from the early 1970s. This is shot on the, um, on the Ari Alexa on digital with this sort of yellow tinge to it. And it has a wintry setting. Apparently the original script wasn't set at winter at all, but just, that's the weather turn. I had to do it in the winter. And actually it works really well because you get on the one hand these kind of crisp, uh, brisk, chilly uh, exteriors against these brooding, sombre interiors. 1981 is sort of famously a year in which the violent crime statistics in New York peaked and then peaked again in the in the early 90s. So now there are some uh, sequences in it that you would describe as action sequences. There's a sort of, there's a tense uh, bridge shootout. There's a, there's a chase which goes from car to foot. To, uh, to 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 railway, which kind of plays like this sort of sombre variation on that epochal chase scene from the French Connection, but actually for most of the drama, the the real fireworks happen in the conversations between husband and wife, between lawyer. The attorney is played by Albert Brooks with this sort of fantastically miserable, world weary, dyspeptic sort of look about him, and. Um, Conversations between him and the district attorney and, of course, between the district attorney, David Yellow, are doing a terrific job, incidentally, um, facing off against Abel Morales, explaining that the reason they're not going to help him is because they, they're going to investigate him. And yet this clampdown that he's doing is actually much more motivated, clearly, by politics than it is by any desire to to clean up the city. It's a you know, it's a it's to do with political ambition. And. It's funny because, in a way, the story itself is quite slender. The story itself is quite simple. It's a, it's about somebody trying to stay away from gangsterism while setting up um, this, whilst establishing this business in an area in which gangsterism is rife. And um, the, the dramatic high points are actually to do with conversations. They're actually to do with the observations of the way in which... I mean, there are moments between um, Jessica Chastain and uh, Oscar Isaac that are absolutely terrific. I was talking to Nigel Floyd about this, and he, he, he loves the film, and, uh, and he said that there was a Q&A that he referenced in which he said that, in fact, it turns out that they've known each other for years and years, you know, way, way back from when they were when they were first learning their craft. And you sort of get a sense of that on screen when you see it's the tiniest gestures. There's a marvellous sequence of her when she's cooking the company books in order for this inspection to happen. And she's doing it holding a pencil in order to sort of preserve her nails. And it's it's just a, a really well-observed portrait of somebody who is really in control and really powerful and who you really do not want to mess with. And as I said, that moment, I mean, there are actually slightly more alarming moments in the, the sort of the counterplay between her and him. So very, very well played. J.C. Chander is a terrifically interesting writer and director. I think the whole film has a great look to it. It, it's interesting because it's it's not a huge, great, sprawling crime epic. What makes it fascinating is that on some levels, and some people have, have said that, when you, sometimes when you're watching it, you think, well, not much is happening, is it? 
But it's sort of what is happening lingers. And actually what you realise is that what is happening is happening between them. It's happening between those central characters and the way their relationships are both centrally dealing with this crisis. Very impressive work. Oscar Isaac... You know, there's two films this week. Oscar Isaac is in two films this week. Alicia Vikander is in... By the time we get to next week, there will be three or four films with Alicia Vikander in them and two or three with Oscar Isaac. Their moment has suddenly arrived. And uh, But it's that thing about, you know, you work for 15 years to become an overnight success. And, and Oscar Isaac is... Empty a, chair. Almost. <laughs> orally. Oscar Isaac, as we, in the interview with Donald Gleeson last week, he's uh, he's in the new Star Wars movie. So it's, yes, as indeed is Donald Gleeson. So you could say that and they, already... they, they they gave us an exclusive on the story and how it ended. You can go back and listen to that podcast. Yeah. I think they the they whole... detail all the main things, the big twist, the yeah. thing about Darth Vader. And if turned... you miss Paul Bettany talking about the end of the Avengers, the new Avengers movie, that's all... on the podcast extras. He's itemised yeah, that he in has. great detail, and there's stills. I think still stills images as well. Uh, next week on the show, by yeah. the way, uh, Colin Firth, uh, splendid Colin Firth, talking about Kingsman Secret Service, which I thought when I went to see it was uh, going to be like Spy Kids. And wrong. it isn't, is it? It's been a Something Else production for BBC Radio 5 Live. What is our movie of the week? For me, Ex Machina. OK. Was it a close-run thing at the end? Well, it was, it was a close-run thing between Ex Machina and... Um, Mordecai. No. no, in a most violent year, Just Simon. Checking. The top news on Five Live this hour. Broadcasters say they'll empty chair any leaders who decline to take part in TV election Still debates. Empty chair. Yes, that was the highlight of, uh, of this week's show, really. And, and nice, to, and nice to hear it again. And so I, clear, so clear. I do. I often sound off mic, but not then. I don't know how that happened. It's there, just one of those things. There was. I've uh, turned into Mordecai. In BBC Local Radio, um, which is where I yeah, started many, many years ago, there was a, a well known story which did the rounds from uh, another BBC Local Radio station where a guy got sacked because he. Uh, I, I've got a, an array of buttons in front of me. Uh, and one of them is a mic I've cut got button. the button. Okay. And when you press it, it yeah. means that the microphone cuts go off. Because you, you've got a cough. You know? <coughs> yeah, but it only cuts you, your mic, not mine. So what this person did was they were reading the news and then decided to press the mic cut button and then express their opinion on the news. Smart move. What he didn't realise was that the mic cut button wasn't actually working. Fine. And so his analysis and commentary on the news went, went out. <laughs> now, I think this is sort of the line that we're on now, whereby we're <laughs> going to leave the microphones on during the news. OK. And then you're just going to say... We're going to comment upon them. Empty chair. Two empty chair. I empty chair. Now, let's add to our playlist. Mm -hmm. Let's add to the playlist. Here's our, uh, our musical offering, because there is a song called Empty, empty chair. chair. Who knew? Well, I did, because a bit of a Don McLean fan... Oh, it's you actually, are, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's actually a rather beautiful song. So here is the appropriate section of the song, which is called Empty, Empty Chair. Chair. Yes. Morning comes and morning goes with no regret. And evening brings the memories I can't forget. Empty rooms that echo as I climb the stairs. And empty clothes that drape and fall on empty chairs. Empty chairs, plural. And I wonder if you know. It's a beautiful ending, beautiful ending again. That I never understood. Which album's this off? Because I know it. Hang on. That although you said, although you said you'd go, until you did, I never until thought you would. you did, I never thought you would. It's on American Pie. Is it okay? What a. Just a great tune. Yeah, he's got a lovely voice, isn't he? 
When I was living in um, Hume in the 1980s... Is this a showbiz anecdote coming No, up? no, it's, it's a totally non-showbiz anecdote. It's a Don McLean anecdote. Um, I was sharing a flat with uh, Phil Gladwin, who's um, still a friend of mine. Phil? Phil. How's he doing, Gladys, these days? Is he OK? Yes, he's fine. He asks after you and, uh, and, and all's well. And he had uh, these Don McLean records. This was in the days before CDs, when we had proper records. And he had these Don McLean records, <clears throat> including Homecoming. And I, I remember the sound of Homecoming as being the sound of the Hume flat, overlooking the, you know, the, the Mancunian way. Anyway, it was, it was something that had a really profound... Uh, memory for me. And then uh, just the other week, uh, Professor Mrs. Her Indoors um, had purchased the, that album because it was, meant a lot to her, apparently. She started playing it. I said, oh, it, this is weird. It's like being in Hume in 1983 in the flat with, uh, with Phil. And, um, uh, and particularly that uh, Narcissism track, you know. And so she uh, sent a message to Phil saying, you know, hey, it's, we're just listening to this thing. And, you know, Mark was suddenly thinking about, you know, living in that Hume flat with you. And Phil went, I've completely forgotten that record. It was his record. He was, I mean, so this thing that actually, I, when I think of it, I think of him. I associate it with living with him, you know, in the, in the 80s. He'd completely forgotten he had it. Here's another 80s Don McLean story, which is even more exciting than that. I saw it's him, going to be hard-pressed to be yeah. more exciting than that. I saw, uh, and stop me if I've told you this before. Royal Concert Hall, Nottingham. It's in the middle of the miners' strike, OK? Yes. And obviously <clears throat> uh, the Nottingham miners were very much part of that story. Mm -hmm. So Don McLean, uh, st he, does the f he does a whole lot of Buddy Holly songs to start with. Then he does the songs that we know. And then he puts his guitar down and he sings a cappella, a whole bunch of union songs. Wow. And he has the entire entire audience of the Royal Concert Hall singing Union Minor Stand Together. He said, look, I know, this is a, I know this is a controversial thing at the moment and I'm not getting involved, but mining songs have been a rich tradition and this is one of them. And everyone was stood it, and sang Union Minor Stand Together. Was it absolutely brilliant? It was, it was absolutely quite extraordinary uh, and very good. Was it better than the moment at the end of, end of Pride when you get there is power in the union? Yes, it was, was, it was a whole lot better than that. Anyway, um, you've got a review to do, and then we've got some stuff to do, and then it's time to finish. So just very quickly, a brief word about Beyond Clueless, which is this documentary written and directed by Charlie Linelin. Um, Charlie Linelin? Char yeah, I never, I'm never quite sure, because I'm never sure whether it's like Adrian Linelin. I'm never quite sure which one is the correct pronunciation. Anyway, he runs the Ultra Culture blog, and it's a uh, it's a it's a sort of video essay about teen movies, a particular period of teen movies from Clueless to Mean Girls, late period teen movies, and it's a strange one. Um, it's it's narrated in this kind of it's it's, it's a, on one hand, what I like about it is the idea of not doing a sort of Talking Heads documentary, but doing a sort of video essay thesis. The problem is it does have a, a kind of graduate essay feel about it, and it's narrated in this very sort of droney monotone by Feruza Bolt. Here is a clip. High school is hypnotic. It ticks and talks, drawing us into a world we know all too well. From memories, dreams, and most of all, from the movies. The further we venture inside, the more we give ourselves over to its eternal rhythm. Before we know it, we're under the spell of a parallel universe. Buses glide into the parking lot. 
Stars and stripes hang lifeless as another semester unfolds. Teens from all around flock into the building, lost in an endless ritual. So that kind of gives you a flavour of it. I mean, I think on the positive side, there's no doubting his knowledge of and passion for the genre and the montage. I mean, the whole film is comprised of uh, fair dealt clips from, you know, a pretty dizzying assortment of movies, many of which people, people would be unfamiliar with. And you come away from it thinking, oh, there's, you know, films I need to catch up with. Um, but the, for me, it lacks context and it lacks uh, clarity and precision of analysis, but it's obviously clearly meant much more as a sort of mood piece. I think, I think it's an ambitious idea, but I don't think it hangs together. Um, I, 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 I think what it really, really, what it needs is contextualization. What it needs is slightly less, you know, moody um, rumination in a poetic fashion, and actually slightly more hard analysis. But other people love it, and uh, that's fair enough. I thought it was flawed. But, you know, ambitiously flawed, and certainly in terms of the montaging of the clips, they make some you know very cute visual connections across, as I said, a fairly dazzling array of, of, of films, many of which will be completely unfamiliar to viewers. Shall we say uh, hello to Elise Piper Let's. on the beautiful Pacific Northwest? Oh, cool. A few months ago, I had written to ask if there was a place that I could direct new listeners to learn about the origins of the multitude of catchphrases and in-jokes found on your show. Mm -hmm. I'd been listening for a couple of years and was familiar with them, but when asked specifically, how did such and such get started, I found myself saying... I have no idea. No idea. Same here. But now it seems my prayers have been answered. Imagine my surprise and then utter delight when I clicked the link that was posted this week to find the landing page of the Wittertainment Wiki. Filled to the brim with just about any definition, catchphrase or in-joke you could possibly think of, it's the perfect place to send any listener, new or old, to indoctrinate them about our beloved church. We now have our sacred text to educate the newly converted and I can finally find out where to purchase tickets uh, for the cruise. So, Totsimoj, Elise Piper. Thank you very much indeed. And the person who put it all together is Giles Blake. Hello, Giles. Hi there. Thanks for calling. No problem. So, uh, how I think we called him, didn't oh, we? Oh, yeah, yeah. Just Sorry. to be absolutely clear about this public uh, service remit. I thought he might say thanks for Charles, calling. Is this your um is this your phone bill or ours? It is your phone bill. That excellent. Okay, fair thank you very okay, much. Okay, it's very good. So, how long did it take to put this uh, work of art together? Um, the first 30 or 40 pages took me a couple <laughs> of evenings. <laughs> I think we're up to about 170 now. My goodness me. Um, although that's a majority of the, well, some of those now are actually coming from uh, contributions from from fellow Wittertainees because we've actually opened it up and uh, and we're getting lots and lots of people logging in and adding things in there. For so, have, you, have you added empty chair yet, Giles? I haven't added empty chair I'm yet. Very no. sorry about that. Uh, do you think empty chair is excess is is okay as a verb? Yes, I, I'd say okay as a verb. It's okay. No, not is okay a verb. Oh, never mind. <laughs> uh, so, just to test you, uh, Giles, we've, we've we've compiled a little quiz, yeah, actually, to see if you uh, we sound a little bit prepared at that point uh, <laughs> to see how much you know or don't uh, about the stuff you've been writing. Yep. Okay, you ready? Yeah. yeah hand, I am. And hands off the computer keyboard, uh, Giles. This is this has to come raw from your head. Indeed. Ready? Yep. Yep. Question number one: What is Dr. Kermode's spouse, a professor of film studies, known as? Oh, that's a good lady here indoors. Very good. 
Well, I've good lady I'm, professor her. Good lady professor her endorses. Yeah, I was actually corrected on that one, and somebody added the professor in. Oh, very good, very good, okay. excellent. Um, um, bonus question: On which film is she credited with changing Mark's opinion? Um, that would be. Oh, the drag it from, That would be. Um, oh, I can't remember. It's a, it's a number two. I can remember that. Uh, I can't remember. You're thinking of Basic Instinct 2, but oh, I, yeah. I always like Basic Instinct 2. I think what you're referring to, Simon, is AI. AI. AI, AI yeah. How many laughs should a film induce to qualify as a comedy? That would be the six laughs. Yeah, That's right. And number three, what did Mark do on his stag night? Uh, he, uh, he went to see a film. Yes. I so again, this was added recently by, by a fellow Wittitani, and I, although I've looked at the page, I can't remember. The he number watched number. a 70mm print of... The Exorcist, presumably. Yeah, and yeah. then went to bed. I think it wasn't seventy, but it was yeah, yeah, funny. It was a stereo print. Question yeah. number I four. Do remember, I do remember that there was a comment on the end of that that it was, it was uh, one of the people said said it was one of the worst stag nights ever. <laughs> Question number four. What are the following actors? Oh, I went on my own. There weren't other people there. That was I went alone. So just to be clear, I didn't take anybody else. What I are the, add that. What are the following actors' show nicknames? A. Sheer LaBeouf. Uh, that's Sleepy LaBeef. Very good. Yeah, or Sleazy LaBeef. Sleazy, or Snoozy LaBeouf. Uh, uh, Hugh Jackman. That's huge action. Meryl Streep. Uh, that's Muriel Strepsil. Keira Knightley. I Keira Knightley. Well, well, that's no longer. No, 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 no yeah. longer. Well done. Very good. Thank you very much indeed, because we now recognise that she's a pillar of the uh, acting establishment. She is. As what is Mark referred to in reference to his youthful communist leanings? Oh, well, this is one I'm quite proud of. That would be an old trot. Yes, that's yeah. true. Uh, number six, from which film is the quote, Who's Driving the Boat? Um, that's Batman. Um, but I can't remember which one it is now. It's actually taken, it's and taken. But, that, but that's a slightly leading question because the the quote isn't in the film. It was in reference to the film. Yeah. Nobody in the film, Simon, says who's <laughs> driving the boat. Right. If they did, <laughs> they would have gone, oh, hang on, that's a problem, let's sort it out. But they didn't. From which film is the quote, who's driving the boat, a reference? To taken. which film? Yeah, fine. That's, yeah Question thank number you. seven. How do you pronounce the word spelt? I N C H O A T E. Question number eight: How do you use Snapchat? Uh, you just use Snapchat. Number nine: We know that Mark and Simon are actual doctors, but how did they earn their PhDs? Well, one of them wrote a thesis and had it reviewed, and another one was given it. That's true. And, yeah. and, we, and which would be which, Giles? Oh, that would be the real doctor, Mark Kermode, yeah. and the uh, the fake doctor Simon. Thank you very much. Honorary, an honorary fake, doctor of letters from University work. I have the robes. Fake. Fake. Which I still wear on a Sunday morning. I bet you do. And finally, question number ten: In which film review did the phrase "the unfortunate event" first <laughs> appear? Uh, well, that would be the um, Harry Potter series, and I think it's the Half Blood Prince. It is the Half Blood Prince, and I have to say, Giles Blake, at the end of that round, you've passed with flying colours. Thank you. Very wow. good. That's and pretty impressive. It is. I mean, it is a terrific, uh, a terrific. Uh, database. How do, and how do I get there, Giles? Just say I randomly now. I'm listening to the podcast and I'm thinking this is fun. I'm instantly going to access my uh, computer. Well, you just go to Wikipedia.net. So how do you go to Wikipedia.net? You just go, go to, to Wikipedia.net. Uh, Giles, we appreciate your devotion, and we'll see you on the cruise. Do you want your new? Do you want your normal cabin? I will. I will. Yes, I'll have no, the one. No, no, he can't have the normal cabin because of the thing that he did last year oh. with the deck coit. <laughs> I've never heard it called that before, but well, it was amazing what he did with it. But it was—it uh, it has got you moved from your usual cabin to the one uh, towards the end. Yes. Sorry about that, or, or the stern, as I've said. The end of the boat. Uh, who Thank is, you, who is going to drive our boat though this year?
I, I thought Liam Neeson had said yes. Yeah, that's true. All right. OK. Uh, Giles, thank you very much indeed. A starring role in the podcast. Mark, you've been fabulous, by the way. You've been fabulous. Thank you so much. Oh, by, by the that's way, true, but... I know a number of people just switched off at that point thinking, yeah. oh, that's it. <laughs> we've got a special bonus. Have we? Yeah, an extra There's listing. There's more. An extra listing Have they bonus. got Florence? It's a lovely morning. I don't know. We've got have something. they got the king? Have they? Have you got? Let's just see what it is. Go on. Florence, it's a lovely morning. Joy. Florence, shall you work Tedium. this morning? Florence, if you don't this morning, you will never do it, dear. Florence, you would rather wonder. Florence, it's a living wonder that your house is not now under a great big cloud of dust, dust, dust. You might be spoiling it, by the way. You must, must, must. Oh, no, you're not. Mirror, 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 mirror on the wall. Who's the, the fairest one of all? Not that you should care at all. Being fair's not worth a jot. Be content with what you've got. What you've got is quite a lot. Florence, by We can play the whole album now. Florence, shall you work this morning? Florence, if you don't this morning, you will never do it. Dear. Simon has been empty chaired, yes. Florence, will you come back here? There's none so deaf as will not hear. Now she's gone for good, I fear. And that will definitely be on the uh, on the playlist. Thank you. I'm now in the studio on my own, everyone. So, bye. On digital and online. This is BBC Radio 5 Live. bbc.co.uk slash 5 live.